This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire, even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your nine to five for nine holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. When we had Kirk Herbstreet on this show a couple weeks ago, he, uh, he let something slip. I don't know if you caught it during the interview. It jumped out at me. Because generally, we don't find out where game day is going to be until Saturday night, Sunday morning. There's certainly a public relations effort on behalf of uh, ESPN that is at work on Sunday morning, really trying to make sure that everybody knows where game day is going. And when Herbstreit was on our show a couple weeks ago with Oregon playing at Utah, Herbstreit said something about being in Tuscaloosa. And I was asking him about his travel schedule, and game day had not announced it was going to Alabama. And he said, you know, he was talking about going from Cincinnati to Buffalo to Salt Lake City, to L.A., back to Cincinnati. And he said, and next week I'm in Tuscaloosa. And I could tell he went, oh, crap. I wasn't supposed to say that. And he gave away the fact that game day was going to Alabama. Now, it wasn't a big surprise or anything. But he he let slip again today. As he hinted about where college game day is going to end up a week from Saturday. Because on Saturday, you got USC and Oregon playing a game. You got Stanford heading to Oregon State. But a week from Saturday, in a 4.30 kickoff in Corvallis, you'll have the Huskies trying to stay unbeaten, presumably, if they can this weekend, playing at Oregon State. Very tough place to play. Really interesting storylines that could develop on that Saturday as, you know, I'm wondering if ESPN would embrace its role in the uh, downfall or the implosion of the Pac-12 conference. Will they try to be a journalistic entity that day, or will they just put on a show and move to the next town, like a circus, put up the tent, uh, trot out the elephants, clowns come out piling out of the car, there's a trapeze act, and then uh, they try to sell your kids some some tchotchkes, and then uh, they uh, take the tent down and move to the next city. Or will they linger a little bit in Corvallis and tell the story? that needs to be told about Corvallis and the Pac-2 conference and everything else that's going on. Kirk Herbstreet uh, on the Brock and Salk show talking a little bit about uh, next week. And does he drop a hint here that the Huskies, presumably at Oregon State, would result in game day being in Corvallis? You tell me. I feel like it's a a wide-open race. Michael Penix is in my opinion, the, the front runner as we get into the stretch run here. And he's got some big stages still in front of him. So he'll have an opportunity. I'm hoping we go to Corvallis. I, I think our crew 
uh, going to be at Oregon State next week. So I know that's an ABC Prime game. Boom. There it is. I mean, I, I, he out and out said it. Very similar to the way he said Tuscaloosa a couple weeks ago on my show. And so I think it's really interesting that Oregon State could have the platform. Now, I, I want to back up a little bit here because just holding the game day experience there may not be enough. Washington's at Oregon State. It's ABC game. It's in prime time, November 18th. I'm assuming that Fowler and Herb Street would be on that call anyway. And if Washington and Oregon State win this week, it's an absolute no-brainer that game day should be there for the morning show. There's no better game that day in the country. That would uh, obviously mean that uh, final research stadium Pac-12 game, not an insignificant fact there. Pac-12 litigation would have had a uh, court date just uh, four days prior to that game. And so you're going to get a uh, huge campus turnout for that game. Would ESPN put on the journalistic hat that day and spend part of the show talking about the breakup of the Pac-12, how television rights are reshaping the landscape, how uh, disappointing it is that a nationally ranked program like Oregon State does not have a conference home? I'm going to guess that ESPN will not do that, but we should do that. It's worth talking about. Uh, look, uh, we got a great show for you today. We are going to talk uh, a little bit about the NFL, a little bit about the NBA, and a whole bunch about the USC at Oregon game. Ryan Karchi, the L.A. Times beat reporter who covers the Trojans, will be with us in just a few minutes. They are changing out their defensive play caller, their D coordinator, Alex Grinch, has been fired. A little bit of that is making everybody uneasy. And... It, it's not all that different than Oregon State going to Boulder last Saturday night and not knowing quite what to expect from Colorado's offensive play caller as they made a change. And, you know, we're at that time of the season where these programs are making changes, making adjustments, people are getting fired, people are getting demoted. Uh, Bo Nix had something to say about it today. He downplayed it. Well, you know, I think uh, that'll be... You won't be probably be able to see until the game, so you just got to go off what they've been doing. And, um, they probably won't change a whole lot just because it's a short week to prepare. Um, but I think they'll just go back through their arsenal and, and pick some of the schemes that they've had and just um, go out there and play ball. I said it last week uh, about Colorado that Oregon State would not like the unknown of not knowing what to expect from Colorado's offense. And as it turned out, Colorado's offense for three quarters was inept. They, it was just it was an absolute uh, stranglehold that the Oregon State defense had Colorado's offense in. It didn't really make that big of a difference. You could see that Shador Sanders was struggling to get time. Oregon State was making it an emphasis to get him on the ground anytime they could get to him. And it really till the fourth quarter didn't become a thing where you even were thinking about you know Colorado being good. USC might be a little different. Because as I asked Nick Aliotti, the former Oregon defensive coordinator, about USC, he talked about the alignment problems that USC was having on defense, the gap integrity, the fact that players didn't seem to understand the scheme. It looked like it was all coaching. It looked like coaching to me. It looked like coaching to you. It looked like coaching to coaches. And so I kind of wonder the impact at USC of a new coordinator coming in. You're not going to change the defensive scheme. You're not going to move a bunch of guys around, but you might just get sort of that uptick in play that happens when coaches get fired or leave, see the Las Vegas Raiders from Sunday, 
And suddenly you get a team that's playing with a little more enthusiasm on one or both sides of the ball. And I think it's a little dicey for Oregon going into this game. You know, this is a USC offense that is going to uh, is going to do what it does. But what does Dan Lanning, what does Bo Nix expect on defense? I'm sure they, they're going to look at film and they're going to know the personnel, but they may get USC's best defensive game of the season. Here's Dan Lanning. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's a lot of thoughts that kind of go into that, but, you know, Coach Odom's actually called it before when last time Oregon played um, against Oklahoma in the Alamo Bowl. So um, I think there'll be a lot of similarities to some of the stuff that they already do. Um, I think that that group will probably have some new wrinkles that we potentially haven't seen. Um, but it all comes back to what football's all about, right? Tackling, blocking, right? Breaking tackles, making catches. Um, so all those things are going to hold true. Um, and we have to play to our identity. I hope when people watch this team, especially, um, you know, really on both sides of the ball, you see an identity. And our identity has to hold true regardless of what uh, scheme we see against us. Yeah, you got to play true to your own identity, do your thing, focus on you. I thought Oregon State did a really nice job of doing that for three quarters last week. Let's see if Oregon can do it this week. We'll talk to Ryan Karchi, the beat reporter for the L.A. Times, covers USC. He's coming up here in about 15 minutes. Uh, 4 o'clock, Andrew Martin will be joining us. He is a Pac-12 basketball insider. He is a guy who's worked as a scout and a coach for 20 years in and around club basketball, in and around college basketball. He wrote for me today at johnconzano.com a report on the Pac-12 conference. He picked his contenders. He picked a middle group of teams that have a puncher's chance. You saw Oregon, or maybe you saw Oregon last night, look really like surprisingly impressive for an early season Oregon team that's a little hobbled, banged up, doesn't have a couple of key players. Oregon looked really good in beating Georgia last night. Good win for Dana Altman to start a season that Oregon really needs to play better in than it did a year ago. Dana Altman at the end of last season, you remember what he was talking about. He was talking about, you know, find someone else. If uh, he was talking about the lack of enthusiasm at Matthew Knight Arena, he was talking about the lack of the energy in the building, the uh, game production uh, of Oregon basketball. Uh, but Oregon looked really, really promising last night against Georgia. We'll talk to Andrew Martin about the Pac-12 teams, why he's picking Arizona to win the conference again, and who could challenge the Wildcats. That'll be at 4 o'clock today. Bruce Barnum will be with us, the Portland State football coach, in the 5 o'clock hour, as he is every Tuesday We'll talk to Barney about their upcoming game, the season, uh, how he's feeling about Portland State and the uh, progress and the trajectory of his own program. All of that still ahead on today's show. Uh, how, how dicey is this, Stephen? You had Colorado a week ago with play caller problems on the offensive side of the ball. Now it's Oregon and playing against USC. How nervous should this make the typical Duck fan? I don't think it should make him that nervous, John. I think there is... It can't get worse. Like, I, you know, USC's been so bad. I don't know that it can get any worse, but I'm with Dan Lane on this one. I think if Oregon does what they do and they just stay true to their identity, they'll be able to run up and down the field on USC. Like, the, the USC just doesn't have the bodies that they have had in the past or that they had, you know, in the Lincoln Riley era, they just have never had the bodies on defense. And I don't think they do this year. So, you know, you can change the scheme, you can change the coordinator. I just don't know how much that's really going to affect it as long as Oregon plays their game. And, you know, if Oregon gets out of their identity, that's when USC can make some plays. But uh, no, John, I, you know, I don't think it's you know it, it can't it can't get worse. But I don't think it's a big deal right now for Oregon. They should be able to do what they want. Oregon should. 
but we've seen USC, and USC's problem all season long was not on offense. Like, that offense can score. That offense is good enough to win a championship. The problem all season long for USC came on the defensive side of the ball and the fact that, you know, they just couldn't stop anybody. Everybody was scoring on them, including Arizona State. Everybody was giving them problems. Washington just destroyed them running the football, which was really surprising. I kept saying, like, you know, Utah, as limited as Utah appeared to be on offense, Utah got 34 on USC, and that allowed them to win that game. And I think, you know, we're going to get a good kind of cross uh, crossover play this weekend is as Washington hosts Utah. Let's see how that goes. Is Washington as dominant against Utah as Oregon was a couple weekends ago? And Oregon's getting USC. Can Oregon do to USC what Washington did on the offensive side of the ball? I don't think the questions at all for me are about Oregon's defense limiting Caleb, you know, Williams and the USC offense. I think they will slow them a little bit. But I still think Caleb Williams in USC, they're going to score 21, 28, something like that in this game. And so now I'm going, okay, I think Oregon can score 35 or 42 on USC, but let's see. Like, let's see if USC suddenly, they, they've got the guys. They have talent, obviously, but let's see if they line up better and let's see if they uh, they have better gap integrity and, and they limit Oregon's run game in a way that USC could not do against Washington. Yeah, no, you're right. The USC offense is going to score some points, right? You know, going back to like the Colorado game when I thought that that offense would score, they didn't. But the USC is a different animal. Like Caleb Williams is going to make some plays down the field. Uh, the running game with Marshawn Lloyd is really good as well. So like they're just going to make some plays for USC and get some points. But you're right. Like Oregon should be able to do what they want offensively, and that's run the football with Bucky Irving. And then USC is going to have to you know, load the box, and then Bo Nix can throw the little dump-off passes or even go downfield to Troy Franklin. Like, I just don't know how in one week's time it's going to be a drastic change. They could give a better effort. Like, I could see that. I could see USC maybe tackling a little better or making a play, being a little bit better. But just with the, the personnel that they have, I just don't think, think that this is you know really even like a top 100 defense in the nation. Like, this is just one of the worst defenses in the nation, and no matter what you do at coordinator – in one week, I don't think it's going to be able to change. Especially, We're going to find out. Especially We're going to find out. Yeah, especially against a team like Oregon. Like, this is the worst chance for the USC defense to capitalize. You know, maybe if they're playing you know, a team like Stanford or a team like uh, you know, Arizona State, maybe it's a bigger difference. But, man, you change up your whole schemes, and now you're going against Oregon. It's just a bad matchup. Yeah, it, but, you know, I, I keep wondering. We're going to find out exactly how much of the problem at USC had to do with the coordinator, Alex Grinch, and how much of it was, hey, they had really good players, they just couldn't get it together. Oregon next week is going on the road to Arizona State. Washington is going to Corrales to play Oregon State. And presumably, you know, this will set up, if if Oregon State can beat Washington, it will set up a civil war that has some interesting implications and tentacles. But a lot of that sort of, uh, you know, leans on this weekend. Because if Washington can beat Utah, you know, it will face Oregon State uh, with, uh, you know, Apple Cup looming after that, presumably in a position where, worst-case scenario, it's a one-loss Washington team at the end of the rainbow. And that is a big, big factor because they could be sitting there as a one-loss team, and uh, Oregon uh, also as a one-loss team, uh, you know, would have to, would lose that tiebreaker in a head-to-head situation, it would need a multi-team thing, which isn't conceivable at this point. But Oregon State could really throw a wrinkle 
into this season by beating Washington and setting up a civil war where the winner of the Civil War game is going to Las Vegas to play against Washington. And, and the door has not closed on Oregon State. And, you know, how much of a letdown would that be? Because, you know, Oregon State fans would be super excited about it. I think it's compelling. It's interesting. You know, casual observers might say, oh, this is great. Some new blood in the conference championship game. But uh, for television purposes, I have to thank Fox, who's carrying that game, that championship game. And the ticket holders, by the way, this game's going to be a sellout. Pac-12 hasn't announced it yet. But uh, I was poking around today. I'm talking to a lot of people. Pac-12, you know, refusing to comment on whether or not it's a sellout already. I believe it is. I think they're just waiting to announce it. But the conference championship game is going to be a big, big deal nationally if it's Oregon against Washington. Does it lose luster if it's Oregon State against Washington? I think it is a little bit because not only is it going to be, if it's Oregon-Washington, not only is it going to be probably for a college football playoff berth, but it might be for the Heisman Trophy as well. So you're getting, you know, double the, uh, you know, the um, the anticipation of that game. Where if you look at Oregon State, yeah, like it would be a great story for Oregon State to get there. And I think that a lot of fans, you know, a lot of neutral fans will be rooting for Oregon State because they've been the one that's been left out of the Pac-12 crazily. Like, I just think it does lose a little bit because not only it's just. It's the double double, double side, man. You get the Heisman, you get the college football playoff, you get the two best teams throughout the entirety of the season in the Pac-12. I think last season you could say you know, Utah, USC probably weren't the top two teams at the end of the season. I think Washington and Oregon have been the top two teams the entire year in the Pac-12. So I think you're getting the best teams, you're getting you know a birth of the college football playoff, you're getting the Heisman Trophy winner of the winner of that game. I think it loses you know quite a bit if Oregon State somehow gets into that game. Now, for me, I would love it. I think it's a great story. I love Oregon State, but I think nationally it's going to lose a little bit. The the way that Oregon State gets there pretty simply is it's got to beat Washington. It's got to beat Oregon. It's got to beat Stanford. Now, I could see Stanford this weekend. I could see Oregon State winning that game. I can even look at Week 12 and say in Corvallis, the Huskies going in there, that's dicey for Washington. It, Oregon State beat them there last time they played. I think Oregon State at home, they're different. And I think that game would be, be really interesting. Uh, the season finale I'm having a harder time with, with Oregon State. They haven't been as good on the road. They would have to go to Oregon on uh, that Black Friday, and there would be high stakes. The only argument that I can make for Oregon State is, look what happened last year. How much does last year stick in the craw of Oregon? And that's the question. Because if Oregon does what Oregon did against Texas Tech or Colorado or, frankly, against Utah, there's just, hey, they circled it on the calendar. It became a big game. I think this SC game feels a lot that way this week. If Oregon does that, I I have a difficult time seeing Oregon State going to Watson Stadium and winning that game. I agree with you. I think Oregon's the best team right now, but... It does stick in the back of my mind that Oregon State decided, you know what, we're down by you know three scores, and we're not going to throw the football, and we're going to win this game. Like That still is in the back of my mind, like, okay, this physicality that Oregon State can possess at times is better than anything else in the Pac-12 conference. And Damian Martinez is still running the ball hard. That offensive line is still really good. So, yeah, I think it's just a, it, it's just a matchup where you're like, man, I, I wish we didn't have to play this team in the final game of the year, you know, we played 11 games already. Now we're playing a really physical Oregon State team. I think it could be a problem, but I do think Oregon is still the better team over Oregon State. I find this matchup interesting next week if they are in if game days in Corvallis, the Oregon State-Washington game, John, because last year, remember, up in Seattle, Oregon State 
they may have been the better team in that one, but Ben Goldbranson, ben Goldbranson throws for 87 yards, yep. and they yep. lose by three points. Like, you're right. At Reese's Stadium, different Oregon State team. I'm not saying expect a win, but, man, it's a game where you know it could go either way. And if game day is there, I mean, what a what a platform it could be on. So it, this whole end of the Pac-12 season has a lot of chaos written all over it. All it, over do, it. it does. It's it's nuts. And and I in fact, you know, I'm looking ahead, and I'm going. I if Oregon State looks good this weekend against Stanford, and Washington doesn't look dominant at, against uh, Utah at home, they they just get a win. I'm leaning towards picking Oregon State in an upset. Well, we're going to find out. Penix has not been healthy, and you go back to the Arizona State game. They didn't score an offensive touchdown. We're going to find out how healthy Michael Penix is this week against Utah. Yeah. And then after that physical game, he goes on the road to Corvallis. We'll find out what that offense is really like. I said at the beginning of the year that November would be problematic for Washington. You saw on the calendar, it was SC, it's Utah, it's Oregon State, it's Washington State. They're back-to-back-to-back-to-back. And... It was. I said that's going to be problematic. I cannot see them getting through that without a loss. Well, does it come against Utah at home, or does it come at Oregon State, or does it come in both places? And do we head to the end of the season, possibly with Washington, Oregon, and Oregon State all sitting on two losses? Now a multi-team tiebreaker gets interesting because the Beavers, if they beat the Ducks and you know finish the season with the two losses. The Beavers have the head-to-head tiebreaker against Oregon, but if it's a multi-team tiebreaker, it goes to you know three teams. It's head-to-head win percentage among the tied teams, and if Oregon State has beaten both Washington and Oregon, guess what? Oregon State's the one seed, and they, they would go into Vegas as the one seed, and nobody's talking about it. We've talked about it. I've written about it. Nobody else is talking about it, and it's out there as a possibility. Just keep an eye on it. All right, let's go to L.A. next. Uh, we'll be talking with Ryan Karchi, who covers the USC program for the L.A. Times. Uh, how are they going to be on defense? I'll ask him. Leave it here. I moseyed over to Killer Burger today in West Lynn. We'll be broadcasting from that location just 10 days from now on a Friday. Friday, November 17th. 3 to 6 p.m. Join us for a live broadcast at Killer Burger in West Lynn, Oregon. The mean streets of West Lynn, as Chael Sonnen used to say, or Kevin uh, Kevin Pritchard, Peyton Pritchard uh, said as well. Ryan Karchi joining us from Southern California. He is uh, working at the Los Angeles Times. He's covering USC football. He's been busy. They had a big week, and he's joining us now. Uh, big newsy week for you. How are you doing, man? I'm, uh, you know, just used to it by now. <laughs> I gotta hydrate. Always Make sure. going on. Yeah, it's better than it's better than it being boring, right? And uneventful. I mean, you got a great beat that people are interested in, and you know, there's a Heisman Trophy winner on it, and high profile people. But were you surprised at the timing of it, or was it one of those one of those firings? Uh, Alex Grinch, uh, D coordinator, is it one of those firings that everybody sees coming? Well, I think everyone assumed that it was going to happen eventually. I, I think. You know, there might have been questions about whether Lincoln Riley would wait until the end of the season. Was there still a thought that because, you know, this is a coach who he's went to bat for on several occasions by this point, uh, kept him last season. You know, maybe there's no sense in getting rid of him before these last two games. But I think that game against Washington really changed the tenor of everything. And I, you could just tell even from the players after the game that, you know, I, I, it seemed like the defense had sort of lost its mojo 
and uh, I don't know that it was going to be able to be salvaged. And when you look at the path ahead for USC, it's still not impossible that they could compete for the Pac-12 title. Uh, you know, granted that'll take winning both of these next two games, which I think is probably unlikely. But uh, you know, if there was any chance at all, they sort of saw it as, well, you know, we need to to make a move to salvage that chance. Now, um, I think ultimately this was going to happen no matter what. The fan fervor was just too loud at this point, and I think the interesting part of it is that you know, by doing this, Lincoln is sort of admitting tacitly that you know, it was a mistake to bring Alex Grinch back, and you know, that's the first you know, major mistake we've seen him make at USC. So it will certainly be interesting to see if they handle this going forward, but I would imagine they don't wait too long in trying to execute the search. Ryan, how how different are they uh, with a new coordinator calling the plays? Uh, how much can they change schematically in just uh, you know a short week? You know, I don't really think there's much they can do about you know the the, the issues they have talent wise, some of the schematic problems, and even last week uh, against Washington, you know, Alex Grinch really changed the approach that he had taken. You know, dropped a lot more guys in the coverage was trying to respect Michael Penix and the Washington uh, explosive pass game, and that really blew up in his face. So I don't know that it's really a matter of changing schemes so much as, you know, maybe you get that extra effect of, you know, changing the leadership, the new faces that are in charge. Maybe guys play especially hard for Sean Nua and for Brian Odom, the co-interim DCs. Uh, that's always possible, but that's uh, probably not the best week to face the number one offense in all of college football. So uh, not ideal in terms of breaking in a new guy. The, I, I kept asking defensive people who are smarter than me, coaches in the Pac-12, what's going on with USC's defense? And they, they talked about alignment. They talked about um, gap integrity. Uh, you know, they didn't say it was personnel-driven. Was it that simple in your mind? You, you've been there. You know, I think it's a mix of both. To a degree, I, I think, in some senses, we, you know, this was a defense that, as bad as they were last year, you know, the team kind of overachieved. Regardless, I mean, you know, they were among the best defenses in the nation at creating turnovers last season, and that aspect of the operation just sort of completely disappeared. Uh, now that's a normal regression sort of thing, but you know, that completely changed the tenor of this defense's aggressiveness. So I do think, you know, there were certainly some coaching elements to the problems that were going on with USC's defense. Like you said, you know, gaps were not filled. You know, assignments were, you know, assignment mistakes were made. And I think ultimately that falls on the coach. Uh, but that said, I do think this is a defense that hasn't really had a good set of linebackers in many years. Uh you know, the defensive line, while the, you know, the idea was that it would be rebuilt through the transfer portal, you haven't really seen a lot of those guys pan out. Um, and I think the secondary, you know, certainly hasn't developed to the level that it should when you have a guy like, you know, the former top prospect in the state, Damani Jackson, who really just hasn't panned out the way I think USC thought they would. So, you know, there's a lot of problems still to fix with this defense. I don't think anyone walking in is going to, solve it overnight, but certainly seemed like a new direction was needed, and, you know, it, it can't get much worse than it was last year. 
Yeah, you bring up a great point. The you know the Las Vegas Raiders, they uh, fire their head coach and their GM, and they uh, play a lot better. You get a, kind of a boost of enthusiasm. Have you seen that in or heard that in talking to USC players and coaches this week? You know, this tonight it will kind of be our first chance to talk to players, especially. But you know, I think to some degree, this defense has been reeling for a while. Um, I don't know if just, you know, axing Alex Grinch is going to be, you know, this one thing that, that changes everything. It's not like they hated Alex Grinch. I know that Raiders example, you know, it was clear that the team didn't like Josh McDaniels by the end of that stretch. So I don't think that's the case here. So you don't really get as much of the emotional boost. Um, but, I, you know, I think we'll see a little bit of improvement. Um now, whether that's enough to stop Bo Nix and Bucky Irving and, and the like, I, I doubt it, personally. There was a lot of emotion at the end of the loss to Washington. Caleb Williams with his mom in the crowd. I mean, I thought that was an authentic scene. It just kind of uh, captures a lot of the uh, emotion of the game. What was the feeling in the wake of that? that moment did was there a finality to what was going on did did usc realize hey we're probably not going to play for a conference championship and you know in in was there was it was part of it about caleb williams maybe not coming back for another year you know help me understand the emotion of that loss well i think you can you can really sense in that that while they're not saying that a factual title is out of reach. I think for Caleb, you know, it was very clear that the goals that he'd had, the goals that I think he believed were very much attainable, whether it be a Pac-12 title or, you know, a second Heisman or even a college football playoff contention, uh, all of those are kind of out of reach now. Um, and I think, you know, he, he has taken losses hard in the past. I think that one especially had been sort of built up as this chance for well, if USC can beat Washington, you know, suddenly they're back in this. The narrative can flip, you know, back to a more positive point. And I, that just didn't happen, and I think everyone kind of in that room realized that, you know, certain things were going to be out of reach now. And now, what? You know, granted, the the math still says that they can make it, and you know, technically, Caleb Williams could still be a candidate for the Heisman Trophy, but. I think everyone just sort of got the sense in that moment that you know, there was a, a bit of an end here, whether they, they want to acknowledge it publicly or not. All right, I want to throw a theory at you, and you tell me, feel free to shoot holes in it, but I had one coach in the Pac-12 say that USC's players are good enough but do not care enough. Too many transfers, too many individuals, too many guys willing to quit. Is Do you see that? Do you think there's a culture issue and i don't think it's unique to usc but with the portal and guys that are very transient and high level players do you see the buy-in that's needed to win at the highest level yeah i don't know that buy-in is necessarily the problem um i think you know defensively especially because that's where so much of the problems are i mean offensively they're still one of the best offenses in college football but defensively i think you know Physicality-wise or toughness-wise, I think you can barely quibble with where the team was heading. But I don't know that I would lay blame on Lincoln Riley for the culture not quite being there. I mean, 
it's always tough. I mean, if your defense is bad, does that mean you're not a tough team? I don't know. Uh, now, granted, I think tackling-wise, that's been a major problem. Uh, and you look at a defense like Washington, who also has had some tackling issues. Or, sorry, it's also had some defensive issues, but still was a pretty good tackling team, at least from what I've seen. So I, I think there is, you know, you know, there's logic to that, that, you know, maybe this could be a tougher program. But at the same time, I, I don't think Lincoln Riley has sort of lost these guys. I do think... You're talking about the transfer portal and the impact of that. I, I think that's been a problem on the offensive line. That would be my own theory. Uh, you know, last year you had an offensive line that had four longtime starters or guys who had been together for a while at the very least. And now you, you really try to throw it together kind of on the fly through the transfer portal. And it made me, it made me laugh seeing Dion say that hmm. the other day that he could just, you know, go into the portal and rebuild his offensive line. Well, USC tried to do that, and it has not worked. <laughs> it's not exactly just easy to find those guys and have them all click together. And I think, you know, in some degree, maybe some of those transfers hadn't clicked in the way that we expected they would. But I think ultimately, like, a lot of those guys, you know, there's a reason why people enter the transfer portal. They're not getting playing time somewhere. Often that's because they're not as good as the people in front of them. So if you're building an entire defense with that in mind, yeah, you know, chances are half of those guys aren't going to live up to maybe the hype that they have in, in moving. So I think that's been kind of uh, a, more of a problem, let's say, than the, the culture of the program. Ryan Karchi with us, Los Angeles Times, covers USC. Build a case for me for USC winning this game. What What is happening if USC wins this game? Ooh, good question. I think, <laughs> you know, I, I think, it, you know, maybe it's raining. Maybe there are fewer explosive plays, especially through the air um, and quick possessions. And maybe USC is able to get the run game going. It's pretty hard to build a case, honestly, at this point, because I, I just don't see USC slowing down Buck Irving. I don't see them getting enough pressure on Bo Nix. Um, I think you know, just the crowd and the, the weather is not ideal. Uh, for USC, especially given the, the state that they're in. Now, maybe they come out very motivated for this game, knowing that this is their last stand. You know, there's the new juice on the defense. Maybe there's three or four turnovers. I think turnovers could potentially turn that tide. But I just, I just don't see USC figuring it out in time, especially when you consider that, you know, there's potentially going to be rainy conditions or, and, you know, is Caleb Williams going to be at his best? So that's, you know, really any case with USC involves Caleb just going absolutely nuclear, which is, you know, always possible. And maybe it's a high-scoring game, and that's USC's saving grace. But it's going to be a tough one, I think. Ryan, I appreciate you. I will see you in the press box. Uh, safe travels, and have a good week. Thanks for having me. See you then. There it is. From the Los Angeles Times getting it from their side. I'll be curious to see when he talks to players tonight if he sees an uptick of enthusiasm. I'll check in with him, and I'll let you know. Coming up, our big splash. Yeah, I did a little recon today. I went over to Killer Burger. I got myself a uh, classic uh, Killer Burger. That's the one with the pickles and the bacon on the burger. 
Stephen, are you going to pop over to the remote broadcast? Are you uh, going to be in the office? What are you going to do, man? You going to come have a burger with me or no? I mean, if it's my choice, I'll be uh, out at Killer Burger. That's for sure. Uh, I would love. I would love to get a burger right now. And November then, yeah, Friday, November seventeenth, a week from Friday. Yeah. We'll be in West Lynn from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. Don't show up at 6.01. Show up at, uh, you know, 3.30, 4 o'clock, 5. I don't know. Walk through the doors. I'll be there. Uh, That brings us to our big splash. It's the one thing that you need to know. This is the big splash. Brought to you by Killer Burger. Voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger's 10 rad burger builds will send your taste buds on an epic journey. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about. It's a lot of fancy talk about taste buds. It's just a good burger. Uh, Look, uh, the Jets quarterback, Aaron Rodgers, hinted at a return for his timeline. First time since he tore his Achilles tendon. Aaron Rodgers revealed a vague timeline. And when I say vague, I mean vague. Uh, he, he hinted today that he could be back on the field in six weeks. One, two, three, four. He said a few fortnights. That's what he said during his weekly paid appearance on the Pat McAfee Show. Aaron Rodgers, eight weeks removed from surgery, uh, sparked some speculation about his return Monday night as the Chargers had their way with the Jets. I felt bad for Robert Sala. He's on the sideline, Jets coach. Did anybody look more disappointed than Robert Sala? Like, he just looked like a parent who was watching his kid strike out for the 14th time in a row, not saying a word, not wanting to show his disappointment. Just It was in his eyes. I don't know if you noticed it. 27-6 to was the final in New York or New Jersey where they play. 27-6, to the Jets lost at home to the Chargers. During the postgame handshakes, um, apparently Aaron Rodgers told a couple of the Charger players that he intends to play in a few weeks. His comments were caught on camera. The video went viral. Now he's saying it'll be a few fortnights. What is he in, Game of Thrones? Aaron Rodgers hinting at a return, and the Jets, they can't get him back fast enough. Uh, Steven, how much of a difference can Aaron Rodgers make? I mean, I think a lot because the Jets roster is not terrible. Like, the defense is really good, and they got some guys on offense. Brees Hall is one of the better running backs. Garrett Wilson's a really good receiver. They are just kind of missing that quarterback. And even with Zach Wilson being so bad, they're still 4-4, four and, four and they're right in the thick of it. I think Aaron Rodgers, if he comes back healthy, and he comes back, you know, what we kind of expected Aaron Rodgers to be, I think he can help a lot. I don't think that the Jets will win the Super Bowl this year just because, you know, it'd be such a quick turnaround for Rodgers. But, man, I do think that they really could use him, and it could really help that team a lot. All right, he's hit what the they call the danger zone in the world of, uh, or you know, surgery and, uh, you know, an orthopedic surgery and, uh, you know, surgeries on knees and ankles and tendons and Achilles tendons. Eight to 12 weeks is kind of the final healing stage for a tendon. If Aaron Rodgers screws this up now, he risks a setback. Now, he's been walking without crutches. You saw him on the field throwing 55-yard bombs. He was kind of fooling around, you know, being mobile. Now, he's not the most mobile guy as a player. Like, he, you know, he could run a little bit. But he wasn't a guy, he's a smart player as a quarterback and avoids contact at all costs. At at what point do you say it's okay for him to go if you're Robert Sala? Because Sala said after the game, I'm not going to say anything that he's told me. I do know that he's working really hard to get back. What, what What would you say is the right approach to take as far as pushing Aaron Rodgers or maybe just letting this unfold more naturally? That's That is the good question because... 
I feel like he, I mean, obviously he has to be cleared by the doctors. And if he's cleared by the doctors and Aaron Rodgers says he's okay, I kind of feel like that's that's enough. Like, I know that Aaron Rodgers is going to push himself to try to get out there because he wants to play. He's itching to get out there with this team because he looks at this Jets roster and says, yeah, it's a good team. I can, you know, he can win a couple games. They're not horrible. They're not horrible. So, like, I just, I feel like as long as Rodgers understands, like, if I mess up and I re-hurt my Achilles, it probably is my career. Like, the career could be over because of it. I think you can you can throw him out there and you feel okay about it. Like if he signs off on it, I mean, what else are you supposed to do? I mean, I I feel like if the doctors say it's okay, he says it's okay. He says he understands what's going on. I think it's okay to put him out there. Right now in the AFC East, it's the Dolphins at six and three, it's the Bills who don't look great at five and four, and then it's the Jets at four and four. Uh, you know, you look around the AFC, and you know there's the Baltimore with seven wins and Jacksonville with six and. Kansas City, of course, was seven. But there's a lot of teams sitting there with four and five wins. Like, if they can get to a position where, hey, um, you know, in week, uh, you know, 10, 11, 12, they're still looking at that themselves being part of that wild card discussion, I think you start to think about it. Because he is the kind of player that could come in late in the year and win you three in a row to finish the season or whatnot. So right now, it's at the Raiders, it's at the Bills, he's not coming back for those games, it's the Dolphins, it's the Falcons. Suddenly we start to get, you know, more towards conceivably where he could come back is right around Christmas against the Commanders, the Browns, and the Patriots to finish the year. I think if they're in this thing, come Christmas Eve, we could see Aaron Rodgers push it for those final three games. I agree with you. What a Christmas present that would be. I mean, because you look at that schedule, and it it is doable, right? Like, I think it's so doable for Zach Wilson to win a couple more games and then be right in the race, probably 7-7, seven and seven, right then going into the last three games of the year, and you go Commanders, that's a winnable game. The Browns is going to be a tough one. The Browns are really good. They get after the yep. quarterback, but the Patriots, that's winnable. Like, they, you know, they're right in it. So I, I think you're right on with that. You look at six weeks, uh, you know, coming up with the schedule, I think Rodgers could be back by Christmas. That it, it, It's just shocking because it just seemed like at the time – it was just a season-ending blow, and the Jets' season was over. But man, what a what a turnaround that would be! I just I have I find it hard to think that he's going to come back from an Achilles in season. It just seems impossible at this point, John. Like I just well, he hurt himself pretty much during pregame warmups of that opening yeah. night. You know, and it was an early game. But but I I think a lot of it has to do with what happens around the Jets, right? Because I think the Jets can play 500 ball to that point, and so can they be a team? sitting at the end of the year around 500 or game over 500. And then the question becomes, what happens with Buffalo? What happens with Pittsburgh and Cleveland and Cincinnati all at 5-3? and three? You need something to sort itself out there, and it will because they play each other. What happens with the Texans? What happens with the Chargers? Those are kind of the questions that need to be answered because if you're thinking wild card, because I don't think they can catch the Dolphins, but if you're thinking wild card, those are the teams you're going to have to contend with. You're going to have to be better than Pittsburgh and Cleveland, and you're going to have to be better than Houston and the Chargers. And so the question is, can the Jets get themselves to Christmas Eve within striking distance, knowing that, hey, if we go 3-0 and to finish this year, we could win a wild card? It, that becomes really compelling to me. Do you actually buy it that Aaron Rodgers could come back? I mean, Achilles injuries, I mean, what? it's nine months at the earliest to really come back in a sport? Like, I, I don't I, I need to see it before I, you know, before I believe it. With Aaron Rodgers coming back from an Achilles, that, the Achilles injury has been the one thing in sports. We kind of figured out the ACL. The Achilles is the one that's kind of like, all right, it takes a while to get back and get back to where you were. 
Yeah, and, and people who come back from that injury, especially professional athletes who can rehab the right way, come back near 100%. And so that that's okay. Like It feels like the long-term prognosis for him, at least into next season, is all right. So to me, the question becomes... Where are the Jets? You know, with three games to go in the season, and then it's then you you ask yourself, you know, is he able to go? I do think the way he plays, you know, there have been times where I've seen Aaron Rodgers like he can run for a first down. He has better legs and better feet than than he gets credit for. But I do think a lot of the way he plays, you know, it's not even a three-step drop sometimes. And I think they can play that game to a certain extent. They'll have to keep the defensive the defense is honest, but I think they can protect him with scheme a little bit so he's not having to move around as much. Um, you know, and, and the Jets are they're not terrible around him. And I think the blessing is that the AFC is not as good as I thought it was gonna be. I thought we would see Miami dominant. I thought we'd see Buffalo really dominant. We haven't seen those, you know, there's Miami is, you know, aside from the game against the Eagles, they've been pretty good. But I uh, you know, Buffalo's been a big disappointment. I think Pittsburgh is just a weird team. They're getting outscored, and they are winning games somehow. Um, you know, well, so I don't even, trust them. Even the Chiefs. I mean, they got dominated by the Broncos a couple weeks ago. They don't seem like they are elite Kansas City Chiefs quite yet. Maybe they get there, but not right now. Uh, so maybe, maybe he comes back. I think it's really interesting, though, to kind of think about it. All right, coming up, we're going to talk with Andrew Martin. He is a coach and a scout who is become a Pac-12 basketball insider. He is in Arizona where he gets to see all the Pac-12 teams come through and play games. We're going to ask him about this basketball season. Oregon looked very good last night in beating Georgia. I thought Oregon would have a difficult start to the season with all their injuries. We'll ask Andrew Martin to handicap the Pac-12 next. Wednesday show, Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach, will be with us. Thursday, Dan Lanning, University of Oregon coach. Got them both this week. Bruce Barnum coming up today in the 5 o'clock hour. See, we're not home of the Ducks. We're not home of the Beavers. We're not home of the Vikings. We're not home of the Blazers. We're not, we're not home of George Fox University or Pacific. We're home of the truth. We get them all. We don't limit ourselves. Andrew Martin covers Pac-12 men's basketball. This is a guy who's been involved in basketball coaching and scouting for a couple of decades. He's worked and lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, the Pacific Northwest, currently based in the great state of Arizona, where he gets to see all kinds of great college basketball and also uh, gets a sunburn in the summer. I asked him to take a look at the Pac-12 men's basketball programs. Look at the uh, look at the teams. Who's who's at the top? Who got better? Who went backwards? Who's just kind of the same this season? Last night we watched Oregon get off to a nice start, a little bit of a surprising start, with a solid 82-71 win over Georgia, and uh, Oregon looked pretty good. If you want to read Andrew Martin's picks. His predictions, you can go to johnconzano.com today. He uh, published them all, and he's joining us now live via satellite from the desert. What's the weather like there? Give us the lay of the land in the, in uh, Arizona. You know, it's a, a beautiful day in Arizona. It's cooled down to, uh, oh, about low 80s 
today. Jeez. So, yeah, can't complain. You're wearing shorts in November. I love that. Um, hey, let's let's get when I give you this assignment. When I say, "Hey, look at the Pac-12," give me an idea of like how, what approach you took. How different this is from from other years. I know you've been out this at this a long time, but you got a transfer portal now. You know, what are you focusing on as you look at last year's rosters and you start to pivot towards this season? Yeah, it's really just that, John. It comes down to looking at rosters to start. And, um, you know, a lot of players had an extra year that still comes into play here and there. So, you know, who still has their older, more experienced players coming back? Uh, who's you know what key players have left and moved on and maybe moved to different conferences or maybe moved within the conference and you know what have coaches done to bring in some new talent let's talk about the teams at the top of the conference and you know i'll give you the the teams that you mentioned as you know your five contenders as you saw them arizona usc colorado oregon ucla you picked ucla a little lower than others did. Let's start with the Bruins. You've got them fifth, and we'll work backwards in the top five. Uh, a lot, the media poll had them third. What did you What did you see when you looked at UCLA that made you say, "Ah, not a not a not a conference champion probably this year"? Well, well, you can never count out Mick Cronin and UCLA for sure. They're certainly in the group of contenders. Um, the main thing I was looking at was just how different the team is going to be from last year to this year. Um, a lot of new faces, um, guys that have been brought in. There were some eligibility um, eligibility questions at one point, and some of those have resolved. Some of those have not yet resolved. So they're, last I heard are still waiting on a couple um, NCAA waiver clearances. But, yeah, just the, different, uh, the difference in the roster makeup. Now, that being said, uh, some are calling it Mick Cronin's best recruiting class ever so even though they're new they're young they're different uh they're still going to be pretty tough yeah he went with a lot of european players i saw you know there was a uh, couple of turkish players there's a spanish player what is he doing there i mean is he is he literally changing philosophy or is he just seeing something that that appeals to him you know i think a couple of these players you just take the best player you can get um and so you know, br- you know, bringing in um, Mara specifically, he, I mean, he's considered to be an NBA lottery pick, uh, future lottery pick. So, um, you know, he, he just has an opportunity to get some of these guys in, um, and, and he's grabbing it. Give me an idea. You mentioned in your report that UCLA may have played a closed-door scrimmage against Santa Clara. What, what happened in that scrimmage, and, you know, how do you find out about stuff like that? <laughs> just uh, through the, the, the online uh, basketball kind of rumors and message boards, and there's a couple burner accounts that are that are pretty well-connected guys that are not tweeting from their real names, but put information. And so, yeah, definitely UCLA. They lost that game, but it's worth noting they were um, not playing without um, a couple of those key players just due to the NCAA waiver concern. So um, missing, missing some of their key guys, but that being said, some of these mid-major schools, you know, they're they're still going to be really good. WCC is is a is a rising conference, or um, you know, maybe has risen, we should say. So, so um, these non-conference schedules are going to be tough for everybody. Is that normal to play kind of a closed door, off the books, little scrimmage that you know I get a chance to see my guys? You, Nick Mick Cronin gets to see a chance to get a, get a, get a game in without getting a game in. Is that is that customary or is that a new thing? <laughs> you know, it's it's 
it's kind of customary, but what we're seeing is a lot more of these exhibition games and scrimmages. I know Arizona State went overseas to Europe to play some exhibitions. Um, just as you're bringing it to roster to turnover, especially bringing in a lot of new faces, bringing in new transfers, it just gives them more time together um, in a competitive environment against other teams. Let's go to number four. You had Oregon fourth among the Pac-12 teams, and uh, I think you probably were looking at some injuries. Jackson, Shellstead, West Lynn kid, McDonald's All-American, Mookie Cook, uh, both of those guys out of the lineup, and yet they uh, they look pretty good against Georgia. What did you see, and, and what kind of prognosis do you have for Oregon's season? Yeah, you know, I expected them to come start a little slower. Uh, a lot of the reports I was reading out of Eugene were that, you know, they had these injuries, some guys are a little hobbled, plus, you know, some new faces, new transfers, just thinking it might take some time to kind of gel together and, and really find that rhythm, but they looked really, really good last night. I'd be really excited if I was a Ducks fan. The new, the transfers are contributors already. They're the real players. Um, Rick B looked great off the bench, really bouncy, really confident. Um, Nate Biddle was playing with you know a high level of confidence, stepping back, shooting from outside. His length is always a problem. Uh, the Ducks looked really, really good. I mean, they've got some sensational freshmen, but, you know, the transfers are going to be really good. They've got experience. I mean, the, the Ducks are a team to keep an eye on this year. And you got in Foley Dante, you got a shot. Colorado, you had Colorado third. The media poll had them fifth. What do you see in Colorado that makes you put them that high? Yeah, that's consistency again, bringing back um, just a, a core group of guys that have played together. They're really tough. Um, they added a, added some size in the transfer portal. They have a really good five-star freshman on the team. Um, but, you know, I, I really like K.J. Simpson and Tristan D'Souza. They're a really solid one-two punch, really tough team to beat. Um, I, I like Colorado this year. We'll see We'll see if they can compete. You know, everyone – we always hear Arizona, UCLA kind of at the top, and I think Colorado is going to give some teams a run this year. Yeah, Colorado did not schedule particularly tough in the non-conference. Does that hurt them when it comes selection time, or do you think they're good enough to play well enough within the conference that they'll get the strength of schedule they need? Yeah, I, that's, a, that's a great point. I think they're, they're going to have to rely on their conference play for strength of schedule. I think they're good enough. You know, the, the, the Pac-12 has a history of kind of cannibalizing itself. But, um, you know, I, I really like Colorado. I like, I like their toughness. I like their experience. Um, and I just like the consistency that, that, they're, that they have there. At the top of the conference, you've got Arizona and USC. Um, you know, Arizona looked really good throughout the conference play, had moments where I thought, gosh, this is a Final Four team, and yet they uh, sort of face-planted in, uh, in the first round of the NCAA tournament. Um, what do you see at Arizona, Tommy Lloyd's team? What do you see at USC this season? Because it looks like the strength of the conference is going to be with those two teams. Yeah, I think uh, Arizona, I have them at the top, they – just reloaded when it comes to using the transfer portal, bringing in uh, really talented, really experienced guys. Of course, Caleb Love kind of leading that list. Um, but they, you know, they just they just brought in a full a, a full loaded a fully loaded roster this year. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, they didn't shoot particularly well in that game against Princeton in the in the tournament, but kind of address some of those some of those issues. I think Arizona is going to be a really really good team this year. 
Um, definitely have them at the top. USC, um, they're Isaiah Collier is just a, a great freshman. They've got some you know great size, really athletic, great defensive team, really tough defensive team. They remind me a little bit of the Cleveland Cavaliers in the NBA. A lot of size, athleticism. Um, you know, they're going to block a whole, everything near the rim, great playmakers, not particularly the best shooting team in the conference, um, at least not until someone can kind of step up and share that consistency. But, yeah, USC, uh, they're going to be a tough team to beat, just mainly due to the defense. Andrew Martin with us, uh, Pac-12 insider on men's basketball. You know, Bronny James gets a lot of attention. He obviously had the cardiac incident. Scares me to even talk about it, and you know the kid wants to come back and play. How important is he? What kind of role could he play for USC? He's he's a really good basketball player. You know, I don't necessarily know if he's the the one and done elite level type at the moment. Of course, he's going to be set way back with with the heart issue. But you know, he's he is a really good player. Um, they. If he can get back on on the court this year, and and I know he's said he's planning on it, he's intending to, and I really hope he does. I would love to see him play. He can really help this USD team. Um, he is a good shooter. You know they have they have some playmakers out there. Of course, Boogie Ellis is a really good player. Uh, as a Collier, as I mentioned, he had a, a really great first college game last night. And um, you know you you add Bronny to that mix um, and just let him. Catch and shoot a little bit. He's you know he's a great athlete, can handle it. Um, he can really really help this USC team, and I hope he does make it back. Yeah, and I think you'd look at that too, and in a weird way, it takes some pressure off of him. You know, it's not the way you want to do it, but it takes some pressure off him because I think the expectations now are just, hey, let's get him on the court. Let's see, let's see, uh, you know, what he can be. Um, let's move to the middle group of teams in the conference. You say these teams have a puncher's chance to to break into the top, and really it's a group that includes a surprising team. Washington at six. This is Mike Hopkins. We've talked about him getting fired. Why do you think Washington is going to have a bounce-back season? You know, there was just some buzz, and, you know, you know, some of this is the best guesswork you can make based on the rumors, but there's there's some buzz based on um, just, just early looks at the team and some of the transfers they brought in that Washington – um, might be putting together a pretty good squad this year. So they've been disappointing for sure um, by Washington standards the last couple of years. But, I, you know, uh, I, I'm excited to see if, if they can actually make a little bit of a run this year um, and maybe turn things around for the Huskies. But uh, if they don't, um, it's going to be uh, – could be tough sledding. Arizona State, uh, Bobby Hurley, you never count him out. Last year, I thought, you know, gosh, he's going to have a terrible year. He wins 23 games. Big surprise. He has a lot of new faces. What is he doing? This is, he he hit the portal hard. He, I mean, that team had almost full turnover from top to bottom. They have a couple players back, and they have a couple pretty good players back. They added um, some good players from the transfer portal. I, this is something that's just interesting. I mean, maybe it's a, do, a new dimension when it comes to coaching, but you see – you know Bobby Hurley. You see Dana Altman. You see even Tommy Lloyd, right? You have, you're recruiting these really uh, great freshman players. You know Dana Altman's got some great freshman players in, in there, um, and then you're also bringing in these experienced players through the transfer portal, and maybe you have five, six new faces every year. And now you're kind of turning the dials, mixing and matching, trying to figure it out, trying to find the right mix, the right group of guys, and. 
you know, that's a real challenge for, for Hurley in Arizona State this year, especially with so many new faces and trying to find the right mix. But, um, you know, Coach Hurley is one of my favorite coaches uh, in the country. I always enjoy watching him. I think he's, um, you know, he's a brilliant basketball mind. And if anyone can figure it out, it's, it's Bobby Hurley. We're talking to Andrew Martin, Pac-12 insider. Uh, Utah, you mentioned in your report that you think Utah can beat anybody on a given night. Craig Smith's a good coach. Um, Utah played really tough down the stretch. Um, and, you know, you what do you see at Utah? You know, Utah, again, it's kind of, you know, I think they're kind of they, where they're going to be unless they can get, they, you know, they're waiting on NCAA, like a, a ruling on one really key player from the transfer portal. If they can get him eligible, um, that's going to dramatically improve that team. They're, they're still... Uh, you know, they play tough every night. They've got some really experienced players back. Uh, they have a great coach. So it's definitely, you know, it's they might not, you know, on paper have, um, you know, the most success this year, but they're still going to be a tough game every night. You can't definitely can't take them lightly. All right. And, uh, you know, I, I would be remiss if I let you go without talking about some of the teams at the bottom. Some are in a rebuild. Some are just trying to hang on. Let's start with the team that you saw uh, ninth overall, Stanford. Ken Palm's got Stanford at number 42. What are they seeing that the rest of the country's not seeing? Yeah, that's a great question. I was wondering that myself. Um, Stanford's got a couple of new freshman uh, faces in there. I'm, you know, I'm. It'll be interesting. They they need to have, you know, they need to have a better in there. Look at kind of that bottom group, Stanford, Oregon State, Cal, Washington State. You know, I'm not really sure, you know, who's going to rise from that group and, and, and who's going to and who's gonna kind of fall there. So um, a lot of people are picking Oregon State to finish uh, a lot lower, maybe at the bottom. I think Oregon State might be slightly better than they were last year. I think they're uh, definitely healthier than they were last year. Um, you know, they got Jordan Pope, great, just fantastic shooter, great player. Um, you know, they got some of their guys that struggled with injuries last year, are back healthy this year. I, I think Oregon State might be slightly better than uh, expected. Um, and so, yeah, just kind of in this bottom group, you know, I'm not really sure who's going to rise and, and who's going to kind of fall to the bottom. It seems maybe a little bit interchangeable, John. Um, I I'm, you know, I'm rooting like heck for Mark Madsen and the Cal Bears. I'm a East Bay guy. Um, you know, went to the same school as Mark Madsen, and so I, 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 you know, I'm his biggest fan. I want him to do well and have a lot of success. I'm not sure he's got the players yet uh, to be dramatically better, you know, this season. But I think they'll be a little bit better. I mean, it's be pretty much impossible not to. He's already got his first win on the books last night, which I was excited to see. So. Yeah, I was really, uh, really excited to see what, what Coach Madison does at Cal this year. All right. When you look at Oregon State, it it's great that they kept Jordan Pope. And what do you see with Wayne Tinkle's team? I think a lot of Beaver fans are hoping he they can take a nice step forward. I'm yeah, I'm I'm hoping they can too. We will we will see. They you know. I was hoping to see maybe, um, you know, they didn't get the, the level of player in the transfer portal that some of these other programs got this year. So, you know, they, they, have, a, they have a little bit of size, um, but, you know, across the board, matching up that position, if you look at roster to roster, 
I think um, Oregon State didn't quite get the same level of player that some of these other teams um, have, have gotten th- through the portal, through recruiting. So, um, yeah, it could be. <laughs> I think they'll. I mentioned I think they'll be a little bit better, uh, but just, than than last year. But you know, I don't know if they'll be taking uh, too big of a step forward, John. Andrew Martin, Pac-12 Insider. Hey, thanks for joining us, man. I appreciate it. Do you want to read the rest of Andrew's predictions and his rankings? JohnConzano.com is the place to find it. Thanks, Drew. Yeah, thanks for having me on, John. You bet. There he goes. Pac-12 basketball. There it is. Uh, underway. I think there's a little more buzz around basketball this year than maybe some other years. I think there's five really good teams, including UCLA and Oregon and Colorado and USC and, of course, Arizona. Uh, but we'll see if uh, somebody can disrupt there. A fresh set of college football playoff rankings are out. It's Ohio State, Georgia, Michigan, Florida State, Washington, and Oregon. Oregon State moving up to 12. Utah at 18. Arizona debuting at 21. We'll talk about all of that next. Well, my quick takeaways for the uh, college football playoff rankings that are out. Arizona at 21. Can we give Jed Fish the Coach of the Year award? Arizona so much better than they were a year ago and certainly two years ago where they were dismal. Arizona making a debut at 21. They ranked the Wildcats uh, Pac-12 with uh, five teams among the 25 teams ranked by the College Football Playoff Selection Committee. Uh, At number 18, Utah. Utah will be traveling to number five, Washington, on Saturday. This is good for the Huskies. Utah is serving a purpose for Oregon and Washington in particular in that you need quality victories. You need quality wins. You need top 25 wins. And the committee knows that Utah beat Florida and Utah beat Baylor. And so the committee's going, Utah's pretty good. And Utah's especially good at home. And by virtue of Oregon's boat race win at Utah and Washington's opportunity to beat Utah, Utah is serving a purpose. They're, you know, they're going to stay in the top 25. They uh, all they have to do is finish this season decently, and they'll be there. And they will provide quality wins and top twenty-five wins for Washington and Oregon, who are both jockeying to get to the four spot and be part of the playoff. Um, Oregon State is at number twelve. Good for the Beavers, hanging around at number twelve, uh, making a statement. They are a uh, top fifteen team for the second week in a row, and. And they are the best two-loss team, highest-ranked two-loss team in the country. A vote of confidence for Oregon State from the playoff selection committee. And how in the world can you keep Oregon State out of a Power 5 conference with a uh, record and a ranking and a profile like the Beavers have sitting at number 12? They'll also potentially play the role of validator for Washington and Oregon or the role of spoiler as Oregon State still has a puncher's chance to get to Las Vegas. They've got to win out. And here's the weird thing. If Oregon State wins out, it probably gets to Las Vegas as the two seed. It has the head-to-head tiebreaker against Oregon. So don't close the door on that. I think it'll be something that gets talked about after Saturday's game because there'll be only two games left. It'll be Washington and Oregon on Oregon State's schedule. And, you know, the playoff selection committee is not going to look at Oregon State lightly if Oregon State goes 3-0 and and beats Washington and Oregon. Now, I don't know if Oregon State has any shot to get into the top four because I, I could see them beating Washington. 
I could see him getting up to like ninth. I could see him beating Oregon. I could see him getting up to like sixth or seventh. I just don't think they're going to have enough to get into the top four unless there's just absolute chaos and some unexpected losses within the top four or five or six or seven programs. It's going to take a lot to get Oregon State even considered as a two-loss conference champion, and I'm just hypothetically throwing that out there. Oregon at six stays in front of Texas. That's where I expected them to be. They are the top one-loss team in in the country. So you got Oregon State, the top two-loss team. Oregon, the top one-loss team, sitting right on the heels of number five, Washington, looking up at Florida State, Michigan, Georgia, and Ohio State. And for people who are wondering, Ohio State and Michigan coming up uh, on Saturday and should be a great game. And uh, I don't know uh, what you think, but I think Michigan's got to be awfully distracted. Um, And excuse me, it's Michigan State's playing at Ohio State this weekend. So that game's in two weeks as Ohio State and and, uh, I'm grabbing the Buckeyes schedule and I'm getting some wonky thing online here. Uh, Hold on. Ohio State football schedule. They got the wrong thing. Okay, so it's Michigan State's at Ohio State coming up on Saturday. Then Minnesota at Ohio State, and then Ohio State at Michigan day after the Black Friday season finale in the the, the Oregon State-Oregon game. So uh, Ohio State-Michigan still has to be played. That's good for the Pac-12 entries, Washington and Oregon, because one of those two teams is going to get knocked out. Now, you mentioned, Stephen, you're, you're looking at the top five and you're seeing Georgia, you're seeing Florida State, more likely to fall out of the top five, Georgia or Florida State? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, Florida State's schedule isn't that tough, the ACC, where you look at Georgia, I mean, they're still going to have to go um, you know, battle that SEC schedule and that SEC title game. I, I think it would probably be Georgia, I think, is more likely to lose a game, and it would be in the SEC championship. Yeah. I don't think that they're going to uh, have a have a loss going into that game, but I mean, if depending on who you play, you play Alabama. Yeah. I mean, you can lose that game easily. Where I think but Georgia's Georgia's got Mississippi this week. That, they're no pushover. I mean, they're ranked. Yeah, that is true. I mean, that could happen. And I mean, you know, Florida State has a rivalry game against Miami this week. You know, shouldn't it be too hard? But uh, you know, I I just think that the ACC is very down this year. So Florida State has to go undefeated, and I think that they will just based off that schedule. But you know, you look and they play Louisville probably in the ACC title game. I, I think they can handle yeah. them. It seems like Florida State is going to be undefeated, John, be you know in the top four. It, the thing about Florida State to me, though, is I think if you are, I think it would be hard to drop an undefeated team out of the top four. But you could make the case in looking at Florida State's schedule that you're going, okay, they're 9-0. They're, they're going to finish the year playing Miami, North Alabama, and Florida. There's not a, you know, there's not a quality win. There's, you know, the LSU game is the only game that they played that could conceivably have a ranked opponent it kinda, this year. It kind of feels like the first college football playoff with Jameis Winston was that the Florida State quarterback and they played Oregon. They were undefeated, but they were, you know, they didn't play anybody that season, right? And But they got in because they were undefeated. I'm with you. The schedule hasn't been great, but it's hard to say, you know what, you won a Power 5 conference, you're undefeated, you're not going to be in the college football playoff. Yeah, keep an eye on strength of schedule and I think, you know, if it's an under, here's my question. If there's an undefeated Washington team, and there's an undefeated, uh, you know, Florida State team, and an undefeated Georgia team, all sitting there at the end. And then, mate, let's just hypothetically say it's Ohio State. Um, what do you do if you're the selection committee? It's those four, right? Like, okay, but what if there's a one-loss Washington team and 
does, does you know does is there a debate? Can Texas catch one of the Pac-12 schools for fourth? I don't think they can because I think there's enough quality opposition left on the Pac-12 schedule with Utah, Oregon State having uh, being uh, common opponents that I think there's enough there to validate the Pac-12 champion. Yeah, and I think if Washington, you know. Let's say Washington does go undefeated, loses to Oregon in the Pac-12 title game. You're still going to have wins at Oregon State. You're going to have a win uh, against Utah. Like those are going to be two good victories for Washington, and it's going to be hard to say. You know what? Yeah, we're going to move these other teams ahead of Washington because they had one loss in the final game against Oregon, who's going to be a top five team as well. Like, I mean, there's a lot to be played out, but I think the Pac-12 John is in a really good spot. And you look at Arizona now; they're 21. Uh, USC falls out of the rankings, but we'll see if they can get back in. Or UCLA is out of it as well, but. I have a uh, I have a sneaky suspicion that Arizona is going to have a nice end of the season here too. You know they play Utah, they play Arizona State, they play Colorado. The schedule is not difficult except for that Utah game, but it's at home. I mean, there's a possibility Arizona gets into the Pac-12 title race as well. They only have two losses. Keep an eye out for that. I think the the problem for Arizona comes with their schedule, and you know you have if you're Oregon State, you've got head-to-head competition with Oregon and Oregon State, so you can. You can severely uh, damage the opposition, but Arizona lost to Washington, so they don't have a tiebreaker on Washington. Uh, they did not play Oregon, so they don't have a result there. So I think you know they do have the head-to-head win over Oregon State. So a multi-team tie could be problematic for Oregon State if Arizona is in there. So if you're a Beaver fan, you want to be rooting for Colorado to beat Arizona or Utah to beat Arizona, or Arizona State to beat Arizona in the next three games. There might be a loss still there for Arizona. And I actually think the the one that could be dicey is that season finale with ASU. I think ASU is just good enough to uh, to hang around and make that a big deal, especially after the way Arizona has embarrassed them in prior years and prior meetings in that rivalry game. I want your phone calls. 503-417-7575. Duck fans, I want to hear from you. I want you to tell me what scenario you'd prefer to see unfold. Do you want to see Washington in the Pac-12 title game? Or do you find yourself rooting for Utah this week, saying, hell with that, Like, let's uh, put a blemish on Washington and and make this a conversation. Like, Do you want to play? Like, I actually think, Stephen, we were talking about this on yesterday's show. Does, Wash- does the Washington fans want to play Oregon? Or do the Oregon fans want to play Washington? Which is more? I think the Oregon fans want to play Washington. I, I the call, they, We had a caller that was from Eugene who's a Husky fan, and he said he's terrified of, of playing the Ducks again. Like, he just does not want that to happen. I, I think there's probably a high percentage, John, and I may be wrong, but I think there's a high percentage of Husky fans that say, I don't want to face that Oregon team right now. We kind of lucked out to get out of that game. You know, Oregon missed on all those fourth down conversions, and then Washington took advantage. You don't give Washington credit, but... If Oregon converts one of those fourth downs, it's probably an Oregon win, and that's up in Seattle. So I'm with you. I think I think Washington is hoping that some team can knock off Oregon and do they don't want to face them in the Pac-12 title game because that's going to be a tough matchup, man. You play Oregon again in that second, that second game. Like We talk about that point spread. I imagine it's probably going to be close, but I'd be all over Oregon in that game. I, I think Washington fans have to be nervous about the, about the Ducks going forward. Do Washington fans have a beef? Because Washington is at five. They are undefeated. They have a better strength of schedule than Florida State, better strength of schedule than Ohio State or Michigan or Georgia. But the committee says, no, they're the number five team. 
Yeah, I, I I could see that. I can see that in saying, you know, the fact that they have that win over Oregon, that's that's the best win in the nation, right? Oregon, the top one loss team in the nation, that one loss was to you. So you you do have that argument of saying we beat the best team in the nation, you know, best one loss team in the nation. We have the best win of anybody this year, and we're still not in the college football playoff top four. Like, yeah, they have a beef, but I think right now they know that just like Oregon does, everything's ahead of them. If they take care of business, I don't think there's any way they can get left out. Let's go to the phone lines. Mark is in Portland. Mark, the rankings are out, or at least the uh, the latest set are out. What do you think? Who cares? Um, <laughs> I, I, I just, I don't, you know, that's all subjective. It's like when they tell me what the power rankings are in the NFL. I mean, it really doesn't mean a whole lot. There's still a lot of football left. I think it's different for Oregon because uh, Oregon State's rooting for, Arizona because they lost to them, so they, they don't have to worry about them in a tiebreaker scenario. Oregon's rooting for Washington because we want them to eliminate everybody. Um, as far as if we lose another game, uh, if they beat the Beavers and we lose the Civil War, we we still have a better still, record. But, still go, yeah. Yeah, but I, I mean, obviously Oregon's uh, goals are a lot higher than that. So the other big reason I think more for Duck fans is, and I, I'm afraid, John, of the scenario where Alabama beats Georgia and you have two one-loss SEC teams. If if Oregon's playing somebody like Arizona in the championship game because the Huskies fall apart, they, that's their excuse to put two SEC teams yeah. in, and one-loss Oregon could be could be out. So we want Washington to keep winning. Uh, if they if they lose one game, I think that'll be okay. They'll still be in the top six or seven. I would imagine. So, um, yeah, I mean, as a Duck fan, I, I just want one. I, I mentioned you in my column, you know, maybe a week ago, and I had a uh, listener who commented, can Mark please say Washington, not Washington? Washington? No, I can't. I just <laughs> say the Huskies. I've, yeah, I've been attacked for that for like 25 years, all the way Sorry. back to Colin Coward. <laughs> if that's your biggest flaw, you're doing all right, my friend. Yes, sir. It's a great season. The last season, John. It's really been enjoyable watching this. This this is amazing. Every every game is big, and their game days coming to, you know, they're always looking at the Pac-12, and it's not going to be here. It's just amazing to me. Yeah, appreciate you, man. Now, there you go. He raises a good point. Here's a here's a question I have. All right, let's say Utah beats Washington on Saturday. What is the committee going to do to Washington on Tuesday? What happens to Washington if they lose to Oregon? How far back do they drop? Do they just, do, I mean, excuse me, if they lose to Utah, do they just drop right behind Oregon? Or does the committee drop Washington back behind Texas, behind Alabama? A loss against Utah, what does it do to Washington? Because that's an important question, because I think it would move Oregon up, but it leaves Washington trying to, fight its way back to the top as a one-loss conference champion. What happens if the Huskies lose to number 18, Utah? I mean, I think based off where they're, where they're ranked right now, they'd have to go probably below Alabama and Texas, right? And, I mean, you look at that, you look at where they have them, and they're the they're the lowest-rated, you know, undefeated team. That's right now, and number five. So I think that they'd probably, you know, go closer to 10, I would imagine, probably around there. Like it seems like the committee and can they get can they get back to the playoff? I think by, so by I, winning out. I think they could. I, I do think if if the Pac-12 has a one-loss champion with the way that they've got the respect this season, 
I have to imagine that they get into the college football playoff this year, right? Whether it's Oregon or Washington, if they only have one loss in the season, just based off the respect that the committee has shown the Pac-12 so far, I imagine they got to get I in. I don't but... know, man. I, I, I don't know. I don't trust the committee. Am I the only one that doesn't trust the committee? Well, I mean. I just don't. You're probably I, not, you're probably not wrong for that, yeah. I don't want to leave the, any of this in the hands of the committee. So here, here's how I see it. This weekend, you've got Washington hosting Utah. If you're an Oregon fan, you're rooting for Washington. You want them to be undefeated. You want to play them in the conference championship game. You want the validation of, of jumping over what would be a top four opponent at that time. Because I think, you know, with Ohio State and Michigan playing the game on uh, on November 25th, you're going to have an opportunity. You know, I think Washington and Oregon will be sitting at four and five, potentially entering the conference uh, championship game. And if you're a number five Oregon and you beat number four Washington, you got to feel like you're in. And so that scenario it unfolds nicely. So if you're Oregon, you're rooting for Washington. If you're Oregon State, I also think you're rooting for Washington because I think you want to play Washington when they're undefeated. You want to play them when their strength of schedule and everything, their, their ranking is as high as possible. And you sitting at number 12 can say, hey, you know what? We just beat the number five team in the country boost us up, and maybe, you know, Oregon State moves up to nine. And that's the thing. You talked about can Oregon State get to the CFP. I mean, think about that. They beat Washington, they beat Oregon, then they beat Washington again to end the season. That's going to be hard to say, no, like you can't, you don't belong. You've beaten these really good teams. They would say it, but they would say, hey, that's a two-loss champ, and how do you keep an undefeated Florida State out? How do you keep a potentially undefeated Big Ten champion? You know, Georgia, it doesn't leave – it doesn't leave you a lot of wiggle room, but uh, I'm not going to say the door is closed on it because of the respect that the Pac-12s get. It also would be peak Pac-12 and the and the oh, conference. Yeah. Oregon yeah, State yeah, running yeah. the table to get most to thing losses. ever, most thing ever, most Pac-12 thing ever would be Oregon State beating Stanford by like a point, and then beating Washington, and then beating Oregon, and then playing Washington again in Vegas, and beating Washington again, and the committee going, "Ah, eh, you're number five. You know that would be. The, the most Pac-12 thing ever. Joel's in Hillsboro. Joel, go ahead. Hey, John. Hey, I agree with uh, a lot of what you guys are saying with how the rankings could shake out. Um, Duck fan here, I'm just, I'm just soaking it all up. I think in past years I've watched a lot of other teams hoping they would lose and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I don't know. This year is so special for the Ducks. And Nick, I mean, his completion percentage, he could – smash the NCAA record and you know his season is above Marcus's at this point of the year and Justin's and like the defense is playing out of their minds they're not playing to the level of their competition with you know as they did with Cristobal and True. I don't know I'm just I'm just soaking it up looking forward to this Saturday and yeah hoping that they can meet Washington in the championship game yeah I think Oregon fans want that game I don't think Washington fans want that game. I think Washington fans would be happy to go undefeated and not have to see Oregon ever again. And so I kind of think Washington fans would probably be going, hey, best case scenario, they go into Corvallis, they beat Oregon State, Oregon State or Arizona gets to the uh, Pac-12 championship game in a two-loss tiebreaker between multiple teams. I think Washington fans would be happy just to be undefeated and be in the playoff and never have to see Oregon again this season because I think Oregon's the better team. And we might find that Oregon State's the better team. That's to be determined.
Punch It Audio is coming up. Steven's got the 5 at 5. Bruce Barnum in the 5 o'clock hour. A lot ahead. Well, you know, I'm here to uh, host a radio show and give you movie recommendations and entertain you and uh, make you think and make you feel. And uh, But uh, one of the things uh, I do is I answer questions from listeners. And Mike in Seattle has a very important question that is on his mind. Mike, what is on your mind? Yeah, so, John, I'm convinced, you know, the dirty little secret about college football is that the hotel rooms in these cities, they quadruple the price on game day weekends and make it a two-night minimum. Have you ever felt that as you travel around to Salt Lake or Palma or Eugene? Probably don't stay in Eugene. I I do. I have noted it in some cities. I think it's really interesting. A place like Lubbock, Texas, Texas Tech, you got a bunch of fans coming from outside the area. Yes, they gouge you. Um, I've seen the prices, and you're right. I... I see it up close, but I uh, I have noted like Seattle and uh, Salt Lake oh, City, n- you know, and other places. You yeah. you got to kind of look around, you got to hunt around, but you can find places that won't gouge you. But yeah, there's a supply and demand thing happening there. It's not just Williamsport that's gouging uh, little leaguers and their parents. No, but it's like um, you know, like if I go to Corvallis on the 14th and out on the 15th. It's 140 bucks a night, okay? If I go on Friday the 17th um, and out on Sunday, two-night minimum, by okay, two-night minimum, by the way, right? It's about 390 a night plus a whole bunch of taxes. They, these purveyors of these places are going to cause people to say, screw it, I'm going to stay home and watch on TV. And if it's a 730 game, in Corvallis, let's say, for that Husky game. Thank God it's 4.30. Um, I'm not going. And so all these little towns that think they've got this golden goose, they've got to be really careful. They need to partner with the travelers and the customers uh, so that they don't, so we keep going. You know, if you go to a restaurant in Corvallis, they don't they don't quadruple the price you know, right. for a bowl of pasta, do they, John? Well, no, not there, but... I got to tell you, in Augusta during the Masters, the Olive Garden oh. rips you off. <laughs> I got to tell do. you. But anyway, it's, tell you. it's frustrating. And then, yeah. and if you don't cancel in time, they take your money, even though yeah. they rerun the room. I mean, it's yeah. like it's it's uh, these these towns need to partner with the bigger project that's going on, so so that people want to come there. And I just want to get it off my chest. And I yeah. didn't know how you, you know, would do that. You know, would you make a choice? I'm going to go to Salt Lake for a good game. I'm not going to go to Corvallis, or I'm not going to go. I don't do that. I I get what you're saying. I appreciate this, because I think that's a frustration that not just Mike in Seattle is enduring. I think a lot of people are going, hey, man, I'm coming a long way. I'm supporting the product. I am bringing my business to town. Why are they taking advantage? There's a couple different issues that are going on. One of them is simply the availability. And I get it from a hotel standpoint. I'll give you an example. O- Oregon was playing at Washington. And um, I, because I travel so much and I'm you know, gone all throughout the college football season, college basketball, and other times, because I travel so much, I've got priority status with some of the hotel chains. And so I am guaranteed that if I make a reservation with enough notice – that I will get a room, even if there's no availability. And so they, and I'm always wondering, like, who are they leaving out? But I do that as a, because I don't want to hose anybody, 
I will book my travel months and months ahead of time because I don't want to displace somebody. Because I know, like, I've been in the lobby when other, like, fam- some families getting told we don't have a room for you and we're sorry and we know you had a reservation. And I've been there and I've seen it. And I don't want to do that to somebody. But some an interesting thing happened during that Oregon-Washington game because my father-in-law wanted to go to Seattle. And so he needs his own room. And then Anna and I and the girls, we got another room. So we had, at one point, I had three rooms booked because I said, you know, are we going to get an adjoining room? And, and I was getting pricey. And we finally just decided, no, we could do it with two rooms. And as long as the rooms are adjoining, we can do it with two rooms. The girls can sleep on a sofa or whatnot. And it was like this, this uh, puzzle we had to solve. But I got a call from the hotel like two weeks before the game. And the hotel said, hey, are you going to use all three rooms? And I said, ah, we're debating it right now. I said, give me an idea. Like, can I put a, can I put a, uh, you know, a cot in one of the rooms? And they were like, yeah, you can totally do that. Okay. I said, then I only need two of the rooms. As long as they're adjoining, I, I can use, I can get away with two. And so the hotel was going out of its way to make sure that they were not going to have me cancel at the 11th hour and not have somebody in that room. And so they, you know, they wanted to sell it to somebody. And I know why, because they were getting double or triple. And it was a hotel that was right down near Husky Stadium. And, you know, they're getting double or triple for what they can normally get. And man, I tell you, like, it's not cheap to go to these games. But I don't ever make the decision based on, you know, one hotel is, you know, $400 or $500 a night. That's normally like $150. I, I don't ever make my decision that way. I may decide, like, you know, I'm going to fly in later and fly out sooner. I'm not somebody who likes to hang around the city when I come in for a game. I come in late. I try to get out early. And a great example was this last weekend when I was in Boulder. You know, I flew in at midnight on Friday night. I could have flown in Saturday morning. but I thought it was going to be too tight to fly in Saturday morning, go drive from Denver to Boulder, cover the game, turn around, come back, fly back out. I was like, I'm going I'm to die. You know, and I, and I want to be one of these guys they find in a hotel room. That's another thing I have this fear of. So I, you know, I travel like that. I'm always like, you know, if I if I'm gonna go, I'm gonna at least stay one, stay one night, sometimes two. But I will not hang around that extra day. Like I got out of Denver at like oh dark thirty on Sunday morning. I was home by ten a.m. And so I I just want to get out of Dodge. But I get it. Like I I look around for me is it's a business expense, and I'm grateful for the readers at JohnConzano.com that are saying hey. We want to read you. We want you to go where the stories are. I, I can go to Boulder and I can cover the game. But I often think about families because once a year we do bring the kids on a trip. And I'm like, damn, how do families do this? Because it's not cheap for the airfare. It's not cheap for the hotel. It's not cheap if you want game tickets. Like, you know, it's not cheap for all of that stuff. Rental car. So I think it does become prohibitive. And I kind of wonder with a lot of Pac-12 fans going, hey, you know, Utah fans are going, hey, I'm going to see all these great Big 12 cities. I'm like, book your reservations now because you're going into Lubbock and you're going to pay like $400 a night to sleep at the courtyard, you know? All right, we got the 5 at 5 coming up plus Bruce Barnum. Well, Stevens all geared up for the 5 at 5. Five biggest stories going on. Bruce Barnum will be along uh, in the 5 o'clock hour as well this hour, later this hour, I should just say. And he'll be here to talk about Portland State football, college football, and whatever the hell else he wants to talk about. Why don't they have CFP rankings for uh, his division? Would that be good or bad? Bunch of big sky teams. 
headed to the postseason. Portland State not among them after last week's loss. Probably eliminated them from the potential playoff race. Bruce Barnum will be along. All right, this is the 5 at 5, and Stephen, I feel like we need a reset on this. See, here's what's going to happen. And I'm not talking to you. I'm mostly talking to Anna, who uh, may or may not pop into this segment. But you're going to handle the 5 at 5. And here's how it's going to go. You're going to play the benchmark. Okay, it's going to be like the 5 at 5 with a bunch of fancy music. And then I'm going to say, Steven's got the five best stories as he sees them. And then I'm going to play the liner that says, number one, you know, all fancy. And then you'll do the number one story. And then we'll keep going, two, three, four, five. Anna on yesterday's show talked all over the number one. She interrupted it. And then you chimed in at one point and... It was just, it was a little off yesterday in the 5 at 5. Not blaming anybody. Me and, Anna, me and Anna had some hot takes. We got to get them out, John. I mean, what, <laughs> I mean, what do you expect? Sometimes you call the right play, and it just doesn't get executed. Sometimes you call the wrong play, and it doesn't get executed. But I felt like we called the right play, and I think we got to the end zone, but I think we had, like, a false start. I think we had a legal procedure. And then we came up with, like, a 24-yard completion. Then we ran a double reverse. We did okay. We did okay in the end. We got to the end zone. I don't know why I'm nitpicking. Anna and me were just like Dan Lanny. We were aggressive on fourth down. We were going for it. You know, that's all it was. She's like, I hate this. I hate the numbers. She liked it better when I lost count of the numbers. All right, here we go. It's the 5 at 5. The 5 at 5. Hey, how about this? Steven has come up with the 5 biggest stories in sports number one well as we talked about a little bit john college football playoff rankings week two they are officially out arizona has cracked the top 25 they're number 21 utah at 18 oregon state at number 12 the top two lost team in the nation oregon staying at number six the top one lost team in washington at number five and they're being undefeated no usc no ucla but oregon stays at six oregon state moves up to 12 uh, still seems like the Pac-12 getting a lot of respect here from the college football playoff committee. I think it's interesting that UCLA and USC are not in the top 25 at this point of the season. Everybody expected it. Certainly USC would be there. Um, it, it lines up nicely for Washington and Oregon in particular. Either one of those wins out the regular season, wins the conference championship game. Pac-12 is going to get a playoff team. Everybody's going to get money because of that. Oregon State could play the role of spoiler by beating Washington or beating and or beating Oregon in week uh, 11 and 12 or 12 and 13, rather. Uh, Utah has got a shot this week, too, at Washington. But right now, if you're Washington or Oregon, you're looking at Oregon State and Utah and you're going, hey, you're here to validate us. We're playing you, and if we beat you, we get a win against a top 25 opponent, and there'll be no keeping us out of the top four if we can do that. It's going to be a great finish to the season. Number two. Very nice. Very good. Well, Michigan, they're number three in the college football playoff. They take on number 10, Penn State, in a big game, but that's not even what people are talking about with Michigan, John. Michigan, they have now sent in documents to the Big Ten that say that they believe shows three different conference teams engaged in communication about Michigan signals. Last season, those three teams involved are Rutgers, Ohio State, and Purdue, according to sources, 
and Purdue was the team who actually faced Michigan in the Big Ten title game. Now, according to reports, uh, Purdue received the offensive signals from Ohio State and defensive signals from Rutgers. This, of course, is coming off the uh, the recently sent notice that the Big Ten sent to Michigan of uh, disciplinary disciplinary action because of the sportsmanship policy. Now, according to more sources, a suspension for Jim Harbaugh is believed to be the likeliest potential discipline in this whole situation. But uh, it's kind of like what I've been saying, John. I feel like all these teams are just cheating. Michigan just did it worse, and they got caught a bunch. Like, this is proving that Purdue got all these signals from everybody. Everybody's getting signals from everybody. Bruce Barnum has talked about that. Like, he's calling all these other coaches. I just see, I feel like it's silly that we're overreacting to this sign-stealing thing. Michigan was just bad at cheating. Everyone's cheating. Michigan was just really bad at it. But I think you have to crack down if you're the Big Ten Conference or the NCAA. I don't like that they had the guy on the sideline at an opposing team's game or filming or traveling around the country like i do think there should be a truce that is issued i'm not saying you got to punish michigan this season i think ohio state's going to take care of that in like three weeks so but i think ultimately this is a uh hey everybody stop this knock it off if you can steal a sign by looking across the sideline fine have at it but you shouldn't be at games filming the opposing team you shouldn't be buying tickets to see uh, Oregon play because you might play them in a playoff. Um, I think it's still bad even though everyone's doing it. Number three. Well, LeBron James gave out a little bit of an update on his son, Bronny, who of course had cardiac arrest during a summer workout while working out for the USC basketball program. LeBron said, quote, things are going in the right direction with Bronny's progress. He's done with rehab. Every week he gets to do more and more we have big, a big moment at the end of the month to see how he can continue to go forward. And um, if he's cleared, we'll not be too long away from being back on the floor and back with his teammates and practicing with the notion of being back on the floor and playing in game situations. Everything's on the up and up, end quote. So Bronny James seems like he may actually come back this season and play for USC, but there is no timetable, of course, for Bronny to play. But they do have hope that he gets some minutes. Bronny was on the sidelines for USC's opening night win over Kansas State uh, down in Las Vegas last night. Yeah, look, I I want Bronny to be fine. I want him to be okay. I also uh, think that the expectations and the pressure are off him this season. Um, I think the uh, I think that the fact that this happened um, really has made it easier for him to come in and kind of do it at his pace. I think people will be very forgiving. But I, I hope we get to see him at some point. I, I just want him to be okay. I don't, you know, I, I'm old enough to have remembered Hank Gathers on the court. I'm old enough to have remembered, you know, the uh, the Golden State Warriors having, you know, a player with a heart issue and uh, certainly uh, Len Bias with the Celtics. I remember that happening. Just don't want to see a basketball player with a heart condition on the court and have it end badly. So, Bronny, get well and go slow is what I say. Here we go, number four. Number four. Well, John, the Portland Timbers, they officially hired Phil Neville yesterday as their head coach, and they had their press conference today. Now, remember, the Timbers Army was not happy with the rumor that Phil Neville would be their next head coach because Neville has had some tweets, some sexist tweets about women back in 2012. Well, Neville addressed those 
uh, addressed the tweets and said that he wants to meet with the Timbers Army at his press conference today. I think it's definitely something that I want to do and, and, and that's something I want to do straight away. I think I think the the supporters of, the, of this football club, when, when it was announced yesterday that the the hundreds and hundreds of messages that I received was from people telling me how fantastic not just the city is, but this this set of supporters. The uh, you know I, I've been here as a as a as a coach in an opposition team, and and the the intensity, their passion, their commitment uh, is I think unrivaled in 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 any team in the MLS, any team in America. So so I, I want I want to meet them. I want them to meet me, I want them to understand me, I want them to get to know me as a person, as a character. Uh, I, I was brought up, I think I was brought up the right way with strong values by my mum and dad and I, I think I've lived, I've lived my life in a, in a certain way and, and in a good way. And like I say, the, the reference to the tweets uh, still to this day are totally wrong and uh, you know, I think if anyone's offended by them, I'd like to meet those people, I want them to get to know me. And 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 I, I stand my character up against anyone or anything. Well, look, I think, you know, it's not about meeting you. It's not about it, one, you know, moment where you're trying to put on a good face and win people back over. It's it's about your track record. And frankly, some of this doesn't even have to do with Coach Neville. It's more about the Timbers organization and what happened with the Thorns in the relationship between the Timbers organization and its fan base. Now, the Timbers are not happy with me. They said they saw my tweet. They know I've been talking about them on radio. You know, they. I, I just, I'm not that interested in getting to know this coach. I'm more interested in kind of watching who he is and how he conducts himself. Like, I, you know, I, he can do an interview with me and win, try to win you over, try to win me over. We've all seen that. Like, you know, I had Ray Rice and his wife on this show once upon a time. They were trying to win us over. Do an interview that was like, oh, see, he's right. he's better. He's you know, he's not about this. He's a good guy. Like the, you could try to say that all you want, but the, the bigger picture is, like, and this is why I don't think the Timbers get it. When you step back to twenty thousand feet and you look at this, you have an organization owned by a guy who did some horrible bad things when it came to the management of his women's professional sports franchise. Totally blew it. Mishandled it tried to sweep it under the rug. It was just a bad look. It destroyed the trust of the fan base as it pertained to him. Now you have this coaching vacancy, and you have, you know, how many millions and billions of people that you could choose to hire, and you find somebody who's got these tweets in his past that make him look like a misogynist jerk. And, you know, I don't know if he is or isn't. I, you know, I don't know if he should or shouldn't be canceled. To me, that's not even the issue. The issue is the relationship between Merritt Paulson and the Timbers and their consumer and how this hire disregards that relationship. And because if I'm Merritt Paulson or I'm the Timbers, when I go to make this hire, I'm thinking, okay, let me do my diligence and make sure that I'm treading lightly and carefully with this hire. And it just doesn't look like they gave that any consideration, any thought. They just said, this guy's got a great record. He's a hell of a coach. Never mind that he had these tweets basically telling women to stay in the kitchen and, you know, whatever else he was tweeting about. It's just a bad look. I don't think the guy deserves to be canceled for life. He should never coach again. Like, people have done far worse things than tweet insensitive things. But I do think, like, this is kind of a bad look 
for the Timbers. And I, I, I think that they're going to pay a price for this one. I don't think the fan base is going to be as forgiving as it has been in other years. And I think they know it. I think down deep they know it. Number five. Let's do it. Former Mariner great Ichiro. Johnny's 50 years old, but you know what? He can still mash a baseball. He was over in Japan coaching some high school players at Asahikawa. I can't, you know, some high school. I tried. I tried my hardest. Where is the high school? It's in Japan. You can't can't pronounce it. Yeah, you know, it's in Japan. But he was out there, you know, teaching the kids how to hit because he's one of the best hitters of all time now. He's taking batting practice, gets a hold of one, crushes it over the fence, breaks a window of the school. It lands in an unsuspecting math class while there was a math class going on. Ichiro looks very nervous, but a little proud also in the video that showed him doing this. You know, just great reaction at Ichiro. Just shows there's a kid in all of us, especially when we're playing baseball. He was so proud of himself that he hit it, you know, to the very top of the building and broke a window, but at the same time, felt a little bad. But just a fun little story for Ichiro that uh, you can still match a baseball, still making an impact on the kids. Kind of, can you imagine that if you're a kid at Asahikawa Higashi High School? There you go. In Japan. And, That's what I said. And you see, I grabbed the phonetic pronunciation. Uh, if and you see this guy breaking windows, pretty impressive. I mean, you're just doing you know Pythagorean theorem, and then all of a sudden the baseball like, wow. pops in. Wow, awesome! Uh, the whole thing reminds me. I don't know why of uh, John Miller, the uh, longtime baseball broadcaster, who uh, has this great Vin Scully bit that he does. Talking about Vince Scully, I'm going to play this. I mean, young broadcasters who wanted to be baseball broadcasters often uh, would try to imitate Vince Scully, figuring, well, he's the best, so I want to sound like him. And that was a tribute to Vin. Uh, and I really did not realize that his fame had spread worldwide until I went to Tokyo back in the 80s. And, uh, and I really wanted to hear the voice of the Tokyo Giants, Genshiro Asami. And, you know, like yourself, knew of Asami-san, but I'd never heard Asami-san. So I turned on the television with great expectation to at long last hear the legendary voice of the Tokyo Giants. And he put me off a little bit because he was doing Vinny. You know, Watashiwa Karakuin Stadium ni Orimas. Hajime mashde dozi arushku lo ball two. You know, it was like uh, kind of astounding, really. And uh, same thing down in Venezuela, I heard the great... Legendary voice of baseball in uh, Caracas, Venezuela, and he was like, uh, uh, El partido de baseball con Farmer Juan, con hamburguesa con queso, mm-mm. muy mejor en todo el mundo. I love that. Uh, I don't know why it made me think of that, but, you know, probably the Japanese parallel that is going on. Did there. you ever break a window when you were a kid playing baseball or anything like uh, that? I did. I broke a window. I didn't break a window hitting a ball like 500 feet and clear over a 26-foot high. In front of a bunch of high school kids? Bill, yeah. Bill. I do remember, like, it, it's, an, it's an interesting thing when, you know, when I was in high school, I was 18 years old as a senior in high school, but I was a junior. I had just turned 16 to 17. There was a kid in my high school who was playing on the varsity he was a year older than me he was 19 years old he was the oldest kid probably in the school and he had been held back and he was giant and he dominated in sports and then he went on he got a college scholarship and he went on didn't do much after that and i remember thinking like gosh what an advantage that would be 
to be just a year older. And I didn't really grasp it until I was away at college. And my younger brother, who's, you know, five years younger than me, he was in high school. And I was in my last year of college playing baseball. And I came home during one break. And he was taking batting practice because he was playing baseball. And I jumped into the into the uh, diamond and I said to him, you get on the mound and you pitch. I said, and try to get me out. And he threw me one pitch, and I hit it over the left field fence, and I just threw the bat and walked away. It was such an advantage. The ball was moving so slow. But he was five years younger than me. So I keep thinking about these kids that get held back multiple years. It's just an advantage, like, you know, to have one year of a, you know, and you have to know that, that when, you know, college coaches are recruiting players, they know. They're asked, the, you know, how old are you? Because they don't want to get some 19-year-old who's competing against 16- and 17-year-olds. It's just not the same game, but... 10-time All-Star, 10-time Gold Glove winner in Japan, coaching players, hitting home runs. Pretty cool. That's pretty darn cool to see that. He could probably come back right now as a high schooler. Nobody would notice. Well, that was the thing back in when he was on the Mariners. Everyone said he would just mash in uh, batting practice. Like, he was one of the more fun guys to watch. And, uh, you know, he was just because he was such a guy that got on base and, you know, got a little singles, but... You just mash and batting practice. I mean, he crushed the ball that he hit there. It was it's a fun video. I uh I'm watching it yeah, right now. Go, go check I mean, it he out. and he makes this face. It's so weird to see him with gray hair. And then the Japanese players in the dugout politely clapping. Well, it's just like it's just like any kid that like breaks something <laughs> on accident. You're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But he also was proud of himself. Like, hey, you know what? I, I, yeah, I crushed that baseball. Bruce Barnum's coming up. I'll ask him. Has he ever broken anything? He he's got kids that play baseball. Uh, Bruce Barnum, Portland State coach, will be next. He's never boring. I'll tell you one of the benefits of having a head football coach on every Tuesday. Monday tends to be a newsy kind of day because we're digesting the weekend, the college football games. And as people know, I mean, just as an example, Washington beats USC on Sunday. Alex Grinch, defensive coordinator at USC, is relieved of his duties. Monday becomes a big, oh, USC's moving on day. Tuesday becomes, what did Dan Lanning have to say about, you know, playing against a team that's changing coordinators? And how does that affect you as a, how does it affect your game plan? So Dan Lanning on his Monday night news conference spends some time talking about that. And it becomes, you know, it becomes a big deal. And, here comes Tuesday, and the benefit of having a coach like Bruce Barnum on is not just that we can talk about Portland State, but he can talk about what it's like to coach against a team when you don't know how they're going to be because they're switching play callers. How big a deal is that? We have used Barnum like that to talk about sign stealing. We've used it to talk about um, you know game planning. And, and today I'm going to ask him when he comes on here in a few minutes, like, hey, what is Oregon up against? knowing that they don't know what the D coordinator is going to do at USC. Dan Lanning, last night in Monday's news conference. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's a lot of thoughts that kind of go into that. But, you know, Coach Odom's actually called it before when last time Oregon played um, against Oklahoma in the Alamo Bowl. So um, I think there will be a lot of similarities to some of the stuff that they already do. Um, I think that that group will probably have some new wrinkles that we potentially haven't seen. Um, but it all comes back to what football's all about, right? Tackling, blocking, right? Breaking tackles, making catches. Um, so all those things are going to hold true. Um, and we have to play to our identity. I hope when people watch this team, especially um, 
you know, really on both sides of the ball, you see an identity. And our identity has to hold true regardless of what uh, scheme we see against us. Identity. you got to worry about you. And that's true. But I think coaches sometimes say that stuff. You know, we have to take care of ourselves because there's a fear, you know, that, you know, you have to do something different because the other team has uh, got a new play caller. Oregon State last week played a game against Colorado in which Colorado had demoted Sean Lewis, the offensive coordinator. It's a new play caller. Pat Shermer was calling the plays. It didn't really matter for three quarters. Colorado couldn't protect the quarterback. It couldn't run the ball. It was the same problems that the other coordinator had. And they came to a little bit of life in the fourth quarter, but I don't think it was play calling. Now comes USC. They're going to Eugene to play against Oregon, and Alex Grinch is out as the D coordinator. What can USC change? How different will they be? It's one of those things I'm going to ask Bruce Barnum, our next guest. And, in fact, he is here to talk about it. Bruce Barnum, Portland State coach, joining us. What does that do to you when you have a team that changes coordinators midstream? Hey, John, thanks for having us, uh, Portland State. Appreciate it. Um, that one's un- everyone's unique. You know, first thing about it, uh, they did it, what, right after the game? Um uh, the dust settles. Uh, you got Tuesday, Wednesday. You only have two practices. You know, Thursday to shine and review, and then they're traveling Friday. So you're not going to do much. But knowing that operation, Odom, the guy that took it over, him and Grinch are best friends. They came up through the profession together. You know, uh, they're close. So what I would predict, just by what people are attacking, uh, with the Grinch stole Christmas, is I think they'll see some tweaks in the back end, uh, some coverage, leverage, um, you know, maybe back to some basics to how to run certain coverages, um, you know, instead of trying to reinvent the wheel, which, I, you know, I think Grinch got caught up in a little bit, you know, trying to make his mark, but um, I think that's what you're going to see. You don't have time to change much by the time you see Oregon. You have to go over everything that offense does, you know, all their tendencies, all their different plays, all their favorites. You know, you might see um, the only other thing you do is, okay, let's push the blitz button more, you know, or let's do this. But, uh, you know, maybe pressure uh, Bowdenecks, see how he handles it, try to catch him off guard, maybe run blitz. Um, but I think you'll see it all from the back end. You're not going to see much, I don't think, up front. But just, you know, because I think that one is unique. Um, and I've actually gone up against Grinch many moons ago. How hard is that when your buddy gets demoted and they come and go, hey, do you want to be the head person or do you want to be the coordinator? Well, that's, I mean, that's the drama. That's the you know, what's going on there? Uh, that's a, uh, who knows? We're not sitting there, but I actually have a coach that was down there, you know, uh, last year, last two years. Uh, Parker Henry, my special teams coach, was uh, part of that staff. So, you know, that's where I got that drama information. But you know, that's got to be, you know, when somebody said something this morning, what do you say? Do you say, oh, you know, my buddy backstabbed me. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of things if, if the trust isn't there, but that's not going to affect the field. I mean, that's not, not going to affect game day. You got a guy who's, you know, got a shot, you got a chance to make his mark at that level of our profession. So, 
Um, I think he's going to jump on the X's and O's in his history. And I heard a piece of what you said. Lanny's, you know, knows a game that he called. That helps. I mean, that's what I did when I played Grinch. I went back to where he was, you know, prior. Um, because when we went to Wazoo that year, that was his first year as a coordinator. I just wanted to see what he knew, what he'd been a part of. So, you know, I don't think that job will affect the field at all. How does a coach know when he's lost the locker room or lost his team or the defensive coordinator, he's lost the defense? Um, I think that's I that's the coach's biggest fear. I think you know that's when you know it's you know time to time to put a stamp on it and, and move on. So um, when you do it, I mean, when you get renegades, when people go rogue, when you see fighting on the sideline, when you, I don't think the social media has anything to do with it at all. I think it's the locker room and the trust and the you know um, when that gets to the field, if that gets to the field. With the players, you know, not trusting the coach, you, you got an issue. Bruce Barnum is with us, Portland State coach. You guys uh, last week uh, didn't get the result that you wanted. UC Davis got you. What happened in that game? Um, we didn't play. I, I I need to stay healthy. I had certain positions not healthy. I had certain positions uh, that I need to roll to to be good um they weren't healthy again so um that's part of we didn't play where we were didn't make adjustments from that standpoint whether it was communication or what you know um with players how good are you is this shot going to work will you be normal i mean um but uh, kids fought i was i was proud of how they played and you know what? I have no excuses, zero. But you look at the whole picture, John. I don't, you know, I had a situation. I was leaving on Thursday, so we get the legs back. I ended up leaving on a Friday on a bus. You know, yeah, let's sell Americana and that. But, you know, uh, it affects your legs. I don't, I, and the only reason I say that, we look slow. I think we're a fast football team. And from snap one of that game, I said, geez, you know. Let's get the piano off our back. Um, is that bus trip? Is that what? I don't know, but I need to make sure I don't put my kids in a position, you know, uh, that they're not at their top entering a game. You have Montana coming to your place this weekend. You go to Northern Colorado next weekend. Obviously, You'd love to go two and zero. You'd love to finish above five hundred. What are you up against this week with the Grizz? Uh, they're a good football team. Uh, their defense is lights out. It was one in one game for them early. You know now their offense is caught up. Uh, for that reason, they're ranked. I think three in the country. Um, but they're led by their defense. Uh, but. Uh, their offense, like I said, is caught up. They've always been strong in special teams. So we have a challenge coming, but it's a big game. And, you know, um, we're healthy at certain positions, and uh, we'll give them a run. Uh, I'm sure of that. Um, so, yes, disappointed. You know, we've dropped some of that, uh, that I wanted to win, that everybody wanted to win. But um, 
this conference, uh, I don't care, college football Saturday, anybody can win. But we're facing probably the best football team in, in the uh, conference right now. You think Montana's playing the best football? Right now, I think they are, yes. 8-1, and 5-1 and one in conference play. Uh, you'll finish uh, with, uh, what is it, Northern Arizona, Northern Colorado. Northern Colorado. To finish the year. I mean, you're, that's the first-place team and the last-place team. You can get this one. You know, you got to be feeling pretty good going to the last week of the season, even though you don't want to look ahead. But, uh, you know, what wh- health-wise, you mentioned some health issues. Are you healthier this week? Uh, more than last week, yes. You know, um, we didn't. I lost a de- one of my starting defensive ends uh, with an ACL, but you know, we're banged up like anybody. Um, but at the quarterback position, I think we're uh, finally back together, and um, you know, we're gonna have fun. It's my senior night, which I do not like. I don't like the emotion of that. You know, I take my guys out to a joint just as seniors i don't have a banquet i take them out at some point after and i get them a you know one of those steaks with a bone in it and we eat that and i got it approved if they're of age we can toast their life ahead and you know move on i don't like that emotion on game day though we can come out and they announce them and yada 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 it's a military night actually they've got uh get this one first one i bet this is the first time in the United States of America. One of my assistant coaches uh, is going to sing the national anthem. So I like it. I've never seen that before. I, they, actually, they, the other day I had him throw a few notes out. I said, you can't embarrass us. I said, give me five notes. You know. Did he want to do it? Like he said, hey, coach, can I do this? And you went, let me hear you. Or well, was he's got a like... talent. He, he's got a talent. He, he's in his, you know, his choir. You know, and he told me that when I first hired him, and you know, I, I said, all right, well, get, throw throw one out, you know, because you know, Amazing Grace, something. But he's a, he's a tenor. It's the only thing I don't like. He's not a baritone. You know, he's not a he's not a deep guy. He's, but I had him throw out a five noter the other day, and he's a little nervous. You know, I don't know those singing people. You know, I I enjoy him, but um, someone was he said his voice last game. He he was a little nervous. I gave him some cincha, slapped some green tea in him. And today we had him eating something to make sure he could, you know, knock it out. And he's going uh, acapellas too. There's not going to be like a 45, you know, uh, record playing for the background music. He's going to knock it out by himself. What would it mean to you guys? to get this win against Montana? Oh, you know, they're all big. I enjoy every win. I don't care who, who, who it's against. But beating the Grizz, you know, obviously, um, that, that would be a big one. Nice way to finish at home. It's interesting to kind of watch this season and the scramble that's happening. And, you know, the playoff rankings came out today and a lot of buzz around that. When you look at your level of football in the Big Sky Conference and the ranked teams that the Big Sky has, and you know, how is this conference going to match up nationally? Do you think in the playoffs? Uh, the Big Sky, you're talking. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, they will. Well, I I think the top teams in our conference right now. I think you'll see one of them, and, and it depends. It, the brackets, you know, how they make the who they put on what side of the bracket, yada yada yada, but. I think there's two to maybe three teams in this conference that could end up in that final game. 
you need national a sta- championship game. You, you know, you need a stadium, and you know that's that's a horse that is dead, and we keep beating it. But you you got a president who's talking and showing up and doing more than just making a video. And um, I've been banging the drum to get you back inside Providence Park. Is is that been talked about at all? That you know, is it possible that the Timbers want to? extend an olive branch and have you back in there as a tenant, or is that ship sailed? No, I don't think it's sailed, you know, because uh, actually uh, our president, Ann Cudd, that's the first thing she brought up because it, it's the most, you know, financially sound decision uh, instead of building something. Uh, but I don't know. They leave me out of those talks, you know. Many moons ago they said, oh, don't badmouth, what's his name, Merritt Paulson's? Yeah. You know, don't do this, don't do this on the radio. I'm like, why? <laughs> I said, what the hell? But it's they true. did. They put the yeah. they put the whatever on me. The you know, shut your mouth for him. Do not bad mouth Merritt Paulson. I'm like, all right. I said, mm. Do you think that's why? You never bought me a damn cup of coffee. What the hell? I care. But they've they systematically squeezed you out of the building. I mean, we all know oh, yeah. they they it made it brutal. hard. They made it hard for you guys. They, you couldn't play on a Thursday or Friday or Saturday. Well, and the price kept going up. You know, when we first played there, we had to pay to play there. It went from, I don't know the exact numbers, but it would double. Like, I remember one year it it doubled, like, from 25 to 50 or 50 or some 40 to 80. And I said, what the hell? <laughs> and they said, um, inflation or something for our workers, the cost of living. I said, cost of living. I said, they don't live like merit. You know, what the hell? Um, and then it was the Monday thing. We didn't kick Barney out. We didn't kick Portland State out. We said he could play on Mondays, like, from 9 a.m. to noon. I don't know what the hell the times were. I'm like, yeah, that'll work, guys. There you go. But I'm not going to badmouth, you know. Merit, hey, he's a genius. He made a deal with whoever had that contract for Civic or what is it now. Merritt Stadium. He, he made a deal that um, he made out. Good for him. He's smarter than all of us. Well, I, I, you know, it's still a city-owned building, and taxpayers built that building, continue to fund that building. I get that the Timbers have made improvements, but they don't own the building. That bothers me that they act like they own the damn building. Right. I mean... It, and I don't know. Like I said, they leave me out of those talks. I'm just I'm rambling yeah. now. You're trying to get my ass in trouble. No, I'm not, stupid, I'm not trying to get you in I'll trouble. Ramble. It bother it bothers me. I don't you know. We don't need a we don't want to get him in trouble. But I I think it would be the right thing to do for the Timbers to go. Hey, let's just be reasonable. They can play on a Saturday when we're not playing, and we can charge them a normal rate that works for them. It takes no brains at all to throw a number at you guys that doesn't work. Like, give, you know, put a number out there that works and let the building serve the city. That was the purpose of building the damn thing. Right, so, right, that's just, right. that's just me. That's just me. No, you know? we're on the same page. We're on the same page. Yeah. All right. All right. Good serve luck this city. weekend. That's poor mistake. Yep. Good luck this weekend, and we'll catch up with you next week. All right. Thanks, John. Appreciate All it. All right. Bruce Barnum, big game for the Vikings is uh, they will be at home 6 o'clock Saturday night against Montana. Big game for them, a tough one for them. They'll finish at Northern Colorado. I think they can win the, the Northern Colorado game. Um, I'll, I'm going to look up the spread. What do you think the point spread is on the Montana game? I do have the uh, 
FCS spreads. What do you think it's going to be, Stephen? Without looking it up, what will be the point spread of Montana playing against Portland State? Uh, I'm going to go with Montana favored by uh, 10.5. Okay. Uh, Actually, the numbers are not out yet, Uh, but that game's not out. It's not on the board. I bet it might be more than that. I bet it might be 13.5. But I'll check the spreads when they come out tomorrow. Uh, Those spreads usually get out later than the other ones. But right now they're showing no line on all those games. All right, coming up, uh, we're going to give our lean for the Pac-12 weekend. Where are we leaning with our picks? That's next. I enjoy those interviews with Bruce Barnum, the Portland State coach. Uh, Portland State sitting uh, one game under five hundred in... uh, in play this season, four and five, three and three in conference play. Let's 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 drill down a little bit on Portland State, and and I and maybe we can get into the picks in the Pac-12 front on tomorrow's show. But Stephen, I want to drill down on this. How should we judge Portland State? It's something that I wrestle with because Portland State plays without a home stadium. This is not um, a convenient thing, or it's not conducive to winning. Montana, Idaho, Montana State, Sacramento State, UC Davis, Eastern Washington, Ohio State, Northern Arizona, Weber State, Cal Poly, and Northern Colorado all have home stadiums. So they're at a disadvantage with no home stadium. They don't have a stadium that's near their campus. They play out in Hillsborough. It's a huge disadvantage. They also are required by their athletic department to play the payday games. Not everybody plays them. They had to play at Oregon. They had to play at Wyoming. They were most likely going to start 0-2, but they're subsidizing the rest of their athletic department. And when you go back and you look over the years at Portland State football, they're essentially giving away two to three games a year in losses, just trying to play that game to keep their um, athletic department afloat. How should we judge Bruce Barnum? How should we judge Portland State football? Like, is it a bad season that he's sitting at four and five, or do we have to go, hey, they're four and three, and they have two games to play? Like, how do we judge them? I think it's four and three with two to play. Like, I, I think you cannot really judge the fact that he has to go and play at Oregon or at Wyoming. Like, you can't expect you know that team to go and win on the road, not with the way that they uh, have been invested in, right? Like, I, if they invest money into the program then, yeah, maybe you can expect them to go and compete more with a Wyoming. Probably not in Oregon, but, you know, when you play a team like Wyoming, they've gone on the road, they've beat North Texas before, they've beat Washington State before. I think if you invest in the program, then, yeah, then you can have some expectations of those games. But right now, like you said, they don't have a home stadium. They're not invested in the program. So I don't see how you can expect them to compete with those type of teams. So I would say, you know, they're 4-3 and three right now. Um, and that's probably where they should be based on how much they get invested into. So, you know, I think Barney's doing a good job there. Eight years ago, he went nine and three, made the, um, you know, the FCS playoffs, and made it to the second round. Was ranked tenth in the country. Um, certainly, he had a bad year in 2017. They were they were winless. They went 0 and 11 that year. Um, it's been a lot of four and seven, five and six. Uh, this year, certainly, they got a chance to be over 500 if they can finish strong. But they're four and five right now. Um, I. I uh, I try to I try to look at like there's two different markers for me with an FCS program. I, I have to ask what the university's asking of of the program. 
And I think Portland State's athletic department is asking Bruce Barnum and asking Portland State football to lose two games a year, payday games, so that they can subsidize volleyball and soccer and everything else that needs to be played. And I think you have to keep that in mind when you look around and you especially look at programs at the top of the conference like Montana and Montana State and Idaho. And I'm going to use Montana as an example, okay? Montana opened the year by playing Butler at home. It was a win. Portland State opened the year by losing 81-7 to at Oregon. Portland State was also paid $550,000 to go there, and they cashed that check, and they rode a bus back to Portland, and the athletic department was happy to have the money. In week two, Montana played at Utah Tech and won, beat them by 30. Utah Tech is in St. George, in case people don't know. Uh, not a payday game. And Bruce Barnum's team went on the road and obviously uh, played the game at Wyoming and was paid $450,000 to play that game. They are now sitting on a million dollars that they earned in two weeks. They got beat 31-17. Um, after two weeks, Montana's 2-0 and and healthy. And Portland State has been embarrassed but is a million dollars richer because of it. In week three, Montana plays Ferris State in Missoula. And Portland State played North American in Hillsborough. And both of those games were non-competitive. And, uh, you know, here goes, uh, here goes Montana to 3-0 and and Portland State to 1-3. and Montana never played a payday game. They played at Northern. And then they started conference play. That was it. They played Butler, Utah Tech, Ferris State. 3-0 and to start the year. Helps them be ranked. Their only loss came at Northern Arizona in week four. They were untested. They went to Flagstaff, and they lost. It was a bit of a surprise. So you tell me, like, how do we compare Portland State that doesn't have a home stadium, that has to play Oregon and Wyoming, against Montana, who has a home stadium, well-funded, doesn't need to play the payday games, and by virtue of that, starts the year 3-0 and and healthy. How do we compare these two things? You can't. I, I don't think you can. And, you know, I, I think it's okay to expect maybe a little bit more out of, you know, Barney and Portland State in the conference schedule. Like, I think you can compare that. But at the same time, you do have to take into consideration maybe there was some health things, um, you know, after having going against Wyoming and Oregon. When you look at Montana, they don't have to go against those teams. So I, I don't think you can compare the non-conference stuff. I think what you can compare is the conference games. And, you know, you know Barney, like you, know, like you said, they were, what, 3-3 three and three in the conference, I believe that would make them. Like, that's okay, that's solid, and you probably want more than that. But I think that's where the starting point is. Is you know what is three and three good enough? Is it not? If it's not, then that yeah, you can look to go somewhere else. But if it is okay, that's where you start looking. You can't look at the non-conference yeah. stuff with Portland State. Like it's just impossible to do. I think if you hired Vince Lombardi and you said you got to play your games in Hillsborough, and uh, by the way, you got to start the year by playing Oregon and Wyoming, I think you would uh, have almost the same result. I just don't think. I don't think it's going to matter who the coach is when you're recruiting to that kind of scenario and you're go- you're going hey this is what we got you know this is this is the you know this is the stadium you're going to recruit to and this is the circumstance that you're in 
I just don't, I don't really, I don't think it works. And I'm looking at Portland State's future schedules. And, I'm, you know, next year they'll play at Washington State and at Boise State to start the year. And 2025, they play at Oregon State, at North Dakota, and at Hawaii. It's a little better, but not great. 2026, it's San Diego State, North Dakota, and guess what? Back at Oregon. 2027, it's Oregon State, San Jose State. And 2029, it's at Oregon. Those are all losses. And it, but there's money buried in those games. So, you know, I, I, I get, you know, people like to point a finger and go, okay, Bruce Barnum, you know, he's just kind of been 500 in the last few years. I, I don't think it's, I don't think you could hire, you know, Kyle Shanahan and do better. 